big political and economic question of the 21st century will be what do we need humans for? Or at least, what do we need so many humans for? Do you have an answer in the book? Um, at present, the best guess we have is uh, keep them happy with drugs and computer games. Well... They already got clunked. Welcome <laughs> back, beautiful and amazing human beings. My name is Luke Radowski here of LukeUnfiltered.com, joining in for a live two-hour broadcast that is definitely going to be incredible as we have some really cool human beings here in the new studio that we just launched. As, of course, there is a lot of very crazy news to get into today, specifically when it comes to trying to oust the former president of the United States from the ballot. It's not just Colorado, folks, as, of course, many states now look to overthrow the people's will in the 2024 presidential election, which is just getting tumultuous and it's going to get a lot more tumultuous from here. We're going to be talking about that, plus a lot more for the next two hours. So make sure to share this broadcast with your friends and family members. And if you want to participate in the conversation, you can also by simply just going over to mysuperchat.com. Any kind of rumble rant, superchat, mysuperchat.com will, of course, be read here on this independent media broadcast that allows you to participate in the conversation and also keep us up and running through Super Chats. Another way to participate is by also signing up to LukeUnfiltered.com, and then when you do, you get access to a special Telegram group that gets to call in to the show and ask us questions during the Rumble segment where... The questions are unscripted. We don't tell you what you can and cannot say or even show us what's going to happen. Who knows? Stay tuned for that. Plus a lot more as, of course, joining us for this really awesome conversation is Mike Benz. Mike, how are you? Hey, doing great. Thanks for, for having me. For the people who don't know you, who are you? How would you describe yourself? And I think for, for today's topic, you're like perfect for this conversation. Well, uh, I'm Mike Benz. I'm the executive director of Foundation for Freedom Online. Our mission is to restore the golden age of the internet and take on the censorship industry. Before that, I ran the cyber desk for the State Department. Uh, before that, I worked in the White House as a speechwriter and on uh, foreign policy and tech issues. Before that, I was a corporate lawyer in New York. So this is, this is going to be a perfect conversation as, of course, uh, there, there's so many things happening within the, the Trump kind of campaign that... It, 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 it's, it's scary, but, but getting a perspective is going to be very important here as uh, a lot of people are running with a lot of speculation. There's a lot of disinformation. There's a lot of propaganda. We're going to be doing our best to get through all of it. Clint is also here. Clint, how are you? I'm doing good, Luke. Uh, glad you made it back. Clint Russell, host of Liberty Lockdown. I am absolutely pumped to have Mike Benz in the house. This is, as Luke was saying, I couldn't think of a better guest to break all this down. So let's get into it. Steph. Hi, everyone. I'm Steph. We are changed. Let's go. Awesome. Uh, let's start off the conversation with the breaking news that's coming out of California. As now we are just finding out that the lieutenant governor there is looking to, to have a conversation with the secretary of state to begin exploring ways to remove Trump from the 2024 state ballot. As of course, Joe Biden, the president of the United States, just came out and said that there's no question that Trump engaged in a, quote, insurrection as he responded to the first state, Colorado, taking him off of the ballot 
for allegedly being a part of an insurrectionist act, a law dating back hundreds of years from now that was interpreted as, of course, Donald Trump wasn't found guilty of any insurrectionist-like behavior, but the Supreme Court in Colorado just arbitrarily said, yeah, we don't care. He's guilty of it. Too bad he's kicked off the ballot. My initial response to all of this is, this is going to get appealed, right? I hope it is. What do you guys think is going to be happening from here as... This is, this is a major move. This is a major escalation. Is there any kind of unraveling of this Pandora box that was just opened on the American public? Yeah, well, I mean, the perspective right now is there was just a Bloomberg poll where Trump is up in all seven battleground states. Two weeks ago, there was a New York Times, Washington Post poll where Trump was up in six of the seven battleground states. So if you held the, the election today, the real clear politics rolling average and even sort of left-wing Democrat polling services would all have Trump as the winner. So, you know, they, this is a continuation of this scorched earth campaign to try to torch uh, two and a half centuries of precedent in this country around how democracy works while redefining democracy to mean essentially democracy's opposite. Right? I mean, this is all being done under the label of we need to protect democracy. But now democracy means indicting your opponent, who's, you know, Trump is facing four different indictments and 91 felony charges, disqualifying your opponent from the ballot, as we just saw in Colorado, and now it looks like maybe California and several other states, and then killing free speech so that you can't even mobilize political opposition. So you know, we are really fully approaching the Ukraine model of democracy that, uh, that the blob is, is moving us towards. And you know, there's a lot more to say on that, but... Yeah. Yeah, yes, this definitely seems like something that would happen in Latin America more than anywhere else. As, of course, Donald Trump, the clear front runner, the polls are very obvious. He's going to be winning. He has a straight path to the White House. There's almost nothing stopping him unless they, of course, do some underhanded, unfair things. This is subverting the will of the majority of the American people. And a lot of people are even going as far as to say that this is a deliberate provocation. This is deliberate kind of uh, an action to to spur on a response here. What do you think about that, Clint? Yeah, no, my concern is this is another Ruby Ridge, Waco type of moment. It's going to be a catalyst for a lot of radicalism uh, in America. And that's my, my gravest concern is that I think we can survive pretty much anything. We can survive an economic reset, the death of the U.S. dollar. We can survive a lot of these things. But a civil war is is extraordinarily catastrophic. And I, and I feel as if they are trying to uh, you know, promote one, essentially. And, and as a consequence, I think that even, even if it doesn't get all the way to that extent, they will, I mean, Patriot Act 2.0, uh, the domestic war on terror surveillance state type of apparatus, we've already seen the framework laid out. I think they will go... Uh, <laughs> I think they'll, they'll Alice, go. Let's get over here. Excuse they'll, they'll me, it, ma'am. My co host is acting up. Get over here. Calm down. Thank get you. Catch. Get up the here. Catch. Good girl. Good girl. Uh, Sorry yeah. about that, guys. Yeah, I think, I think it's just going to be uh, opening the door to the next level of tyranny in this country. And uh, when I heard the news, I was very concerned. But then when I saw the news this morning that it was Maine and New Mexico and California and all these other states that are, are pushing the same direction, what I what I see is like Colorado is the first shot fired. And if that one does get overturned, it, ultimately all these other states are just going to reconfigure ever so slightly so that eventually they get a handful of states that he's not on the ballot for. And if that's the case with the Electoral College, maybe that's enough to, to shift it. Well, everyone's reaction is, is very important here because Biden didn't come out and say, hey, uh, this is wrong. He said he's guilty of an insurrection, even though 
he's not guilty. There, there, there wasn't any official court proceeding where Donald Trump was found guilty of any of this, but they are extrapolating things that haven't even been done, haven't even been finished. And you, you could see the trajectory here, especially with what you just mentioned, all these other states kind of following suit here, as of course, Maine is going to have a similar decision that is expected to be announced this Friday. California is looking into it. New Hampshire was talking about doing this just a few weeks ago. Michigan has a lawsuit right now in its state that could bar Trump from the ballot. Arizona, the secretary of state there has said that, quote, Donald Trump lacks the authority uh, that, that, excuse me, the secretary of state lacks the authority to disqualify Trump. But the issue, quote, remains open. New Mexico is also looking into this. Holy frickin' cow. Like, what is going to happen when Donald Trump can't be on the ballot, can't be on the ticket? What's going to be the response for everyone that wants to vote for him, that wants to be, wants him to be the next president of the United States, but might not be able to because of this bureaucratic legal game that all these people are playing? Well, ironically, we saw a very small example of, I think, what the response will be, and it's what Trump is being accused of insurrection for, which is his supporters becoming enraged to the extent that they're willing to you know, risk running afoul of the law. And that that's my gravest concern, is that if people feel as if there is no peaceful resolution, if there's no potential for democratic address or redress of grievances, well, then we know what comes next, and I don't want to see that. Yeah, it's just funny when, when you think about... Um how what a huge apparatus we have in order to punish other countries who do the thing that we just did right like in russia you know alexei navalny was this guy running for president against putin uh, he topped out at only two percent of, of polls i mean he, he was a total non-factor but he was a cia incubated asset he you know he was uh, he was groomed at the yale university jackson school which is a major emerging leaders program for the cia and you know, we were trying to use him to sort of flank Putin from the right, and the Putin regime went after him and, uh, you know, indicted him on, on charges and tried to basically scrap him from the political race, and he was only at 2%. And when they did that, the State Department and the Treasury sanctioned Russia. You know, they, they seized assets. They, you know, they, they rallied Europe to join in the sanctions. I mean, the U.S. should be kicked off the U.S. dollar for doing what it just did, according to our own standards. <laughs> we should be sanctioning ourselves, right? We should be invading the United States to preserve democracy and freedom. <laughs> I mean, holy frickin' cow, you're, you're absolutely right. As, of course, lesser actions were, were kind of met with a declaration from the U.S. State Department essentially saying, we're going to invade you, we're going to overthrow you, we are going to make sure that you can't have any political power because you're abusing it. What would the United States do if the United States was looking at the United States from the outside? War. Absolutely. A, a conflict. Absolutely. At least economic warfare. At least sanctions. And uh, it, it's, it's pretty crazy to... I mean, it was always, it was, there was always such a layer of hypocrisy to say, we're going into Iraq and Afghanistan for democracy and freedom. we, we got to help Ukraine preserve their democracy, as they also called off their elections. Um, and, and this brings me to a point of, of something that I've been saying for a couple months now. And uh, I, I kind of said it without thinking first. And then the more I started to talk about it, the more I kind of realized this is the kind of trajectory that we are on. I came out and I said, there's a chance that we won't have an election at all, because what's going to happen if the, the number one lead front runner with all the populist support isn't on the ballot? People aren't going to vote. And if people don't vote, you can't have an election. So I, I think the probability of that is just going up and up. This is we're still in 2023. We're still in December. 
officially everything really kind of begins on Super Tuesday in just a few days from now in Iowa when Donald Trump is going to be in court. He's not going to be able to be in Iowa. He's going to have to be in court, which is going to be something that the entire country is going to be paying attention to. And this is this is a dangerous uh, gambit. This is a dangerous, risky game that a lot of powerful people are playing. Do you think they're they're calculating just how chaotic this could get from here? Or, or do you think they want it to get chaotic? Well, there's two things I think that factor into their analysis there. One is, you know, I don't think they have any fear that Trump would win California um, or, or even Colorado. But, you know, as you mentioned, Michigan and Arizona are entertaining that. That's those, those are two of the seven swing states where Trump is currently winning in the polls in both of those places. Those judges, those uh, appellate court judges are not going to want to make some rogue maverick decision that turns an election. But if there's a coalition of six or seven other states who've already codified that, then they're just basically ratifying what their peers have already done. So this has a sort of snowball effect that I think they're building up to. And then on the second front, the fact that it is very likely to be overturned by the Supreme Court. In fact, the Colorado decision even stayed its own uh, force until, until, until SCOTUS ruled on it. I think part of that will put pressure on the Supreme Court when it looks like the Supreme Court is acting as the sort of omni, omnipotent blocker of all these you know, seven different uh, appellate court decisions, and it's going to give more legitimacy from the Democrat side to try to pack the court or try to take some action that FDR did to try to threaten uh, in any myriad number of ways to say, well, the SCOTUS is actually defying the will of the entire rest of the judiciary, so we need to, you know, pack the court or we need to do some other legislative solution. And, you know, the fact is, is half the Republican Party in the, at the legislature level is tied into the same blob as the Democrats. They might be able to get a two-thirds majority to do something like that. I'm glad that. you took it that direction because I was thinking the same thing. I think the Supreme Court probably does overturn it, but then what does that mean? It means that all of the Democrat voters now perceive Trump as an Ill illegitimate President, I mean, they already did because of the whole Russia collusion nonsense, but now it gives them this new iteration, this new uh, kind of siren cry to, to rally their their cause is that they won't they won't honor the results of the election if he is allowed to be on the ballot. So either way, you have the potential for violence. And I, it, I don't you know, to Luke's question, I don't think there's any chance that this is accidental. I think they know exactly what they're doing. It, I mean, sure, they could just be so. Uh, ideologically possessed that they're going along with it uh, just because they have Trump derangement syndrome. But you have to be able to think at least one or two steps ahead and see where this goes. And it really does amount to the end of American democratic norms. And the precedent is horrifying. Absolutely. Um, the, the Colorado GOP actually announced that they're going to be moving forward uh, w with this as uh, in a way where they're looking at the situation. But they also announced that they're going to, of course, be moving uh, from a primary to a caucus system if this Supreme Court decision is upheld. Now, what will the Supreme Court uh, kind of rule here? That, that That's something that a lot of people are going to be also saying could be potentially up in the air. A lot of people are saying, well, the Republicans have control of the federal Supreme Court, but you never know just how dirty uh, politics is, just how underhanded it is, just how many uh, politicians are on um, flight logs and judges that are on flight logs that uh, have a lot of uh, extortion on them that, that could be utilized and played out here as it's fair to say the system is pulling out all the stops trying to make sure that Donald Trump cannot become the next president of the United States. And that's absolutely terrifying. And that's something that 
Other presidential candidates like Vivek Ramaswamy have decided to make a stand against essentially saying that he will withdraw from the Colorado GOP until Donald Trump is allowed to be on the ballot. Here's some statements from Vivek that he made last night that I thought were very telling. They have just tried to bar President Trump from the Colorado ballot using an unconstitutional maneuver that is a bastardization of the 14th Amendment to our U.S. Constitution. This was a provision, Section 3, that was designed to bar Confederate members, people who switched to the Confederacy, from actually being able to serve. That's very different than what's at issue here, to say the least. This is a hollowed out husk of what the country was built on. The basic principle that we the people select our leadership, not the unelected elite class in the back of palace halls. That's old world Europe, not the United States. That's why I'm making a pledge today that I will withdraw, I pledge to withdraw from the Colorado GOP primary ballot unless and until Trump's name is restored. And I demand that Ron DeSantis and Chris Christie and Nikki Haley do the same thing, or else these Republicans are simply complicit in this unconstitutional attack on the way we conduct our constitutional republic. I refuse to be complicit in that. I think what they're doing is wrong. And I think it's up to Republicans to step up and stand up with a spine for our country's future. That's really what's at stake. Whether we the people actually have a say in deciding who leads this country. Some people would say Vivek is hyperbolic. I don't think he's hyperbolic enough. I I think the statements he made has definitely given him a lot of uh, um, support. A lot of people are saying that he's making the right statements. I think he made the right move calling out DeSantis, calling out Nikki Haley, as, of course, those two other uh, presidential hopefuls, they probably will not be removing their name from the ballot but Vivek is, and I think this is why Vivek is such a force to be reckoned with that CNN is even talking about how they are freaked out. And Van Jones literally shakes on camera when he has to hear him speak because I think Vivek has a knack of just hitting the nail on the head. And I think he did that exactly with this statement as soon as the news came out. What do you guys think? I think that's what's so remarkable about Vivek is that he he makes the right call and it's always within an hour of the news breaking. I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen a politician that can do that. I mean, that's he's he has eaten DeSantis's lunch because DeSantis always takes a day or two before he says the wrong thing. Vivek says the right thing within minutes of every news story breaking. It's really amazing. Yeah, I was at the presidential debates, and there was a particular moment where the moderator asked if they would pardon Donald Trump, and they were told to, to raise their hands. Um, and I remember being there in the crowd, and Vivek, like, he, he flung his arm up. A lot of people have it flung it, like, literally, as, as, as fast as he could, as high as he can. What we saw DeSantis do was kind of very telling. He kind of kind of looked around first, and then after looking around, he kind of half raised his hands, yeah. sort of. And that was extremely telling. Now, the DeSantis campaign said um, that they had specific rules that they wanted to abide by, that they told the moderators that, that they're not going to be raising their hands for specific things. Whatever you think that the, the situation is, I, I think it is a perfect representation of what we're seeing right now with Vivek Raising his hand, making the right statement, standing behind principles, standing behind actually upholding the U.S. government, our kind of democratic elections, sort of, if you could even call them that. But but standing up behind these ideas when uh, DeSantis is looking for an opportunity that essentially helps himself and not everyone else and not this country. Is that is that too much of a hyperbolic statement? What do you think? Yeah, I think Vivek is, is trying to be Trumpism after Trump. And he's a young guy, even if Trump were to win a term. 
in whatever destabilized form that would be with all the forces against him. You know, Vivek, he's he's putting himself now in a place to sort of take the baton from Trump one way or another at the end of this. And I think winning enough sort of goodwill and karma, I mean, I, I have to think that a huge proportion of support for Trump currently is from the martyrdom effect. You know, I think there were a lot of, of folks in 2020 who felt somewhat disenchanted with some of the actions Trump took in 2016. And it was much more of a, oh, you know, the, the far left Democrats, as opposed to talking about globalism, as opposed to talking about the things that really got the campaign going in 2016. Uh, but then the way they went after him and crucified him and really turned him into this martyr figure like we've never had in this country before, like... I don't know that world history has ever had before uh, on this level of a, of a popular um, leader of of the, the biggest, the most powerful country on the, on the planet. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people who said, you know what, I, I was open to being for a non-Trump GOP candidate, but after what you guys did to him, I can't sleep. It, it would be like abandoning your buddy after he gets, you know, shot in the kneecap. Uh, it's there's there's a point of personal pride where it's like you just can't do that to somebody and so i think because of that you know trump is is untouchable in many ways in in the gop base for for the next year but the angling to be for who will be after trump you know by immediately putting these statements out by immediately raising his hands by immediately agreeing and amplifying i don't know that there's been even one point that vivek has forcefully gone against Trump on any point of policy, actually, that I can think about. And so I think that is, he is lining himself up to be the baton carrier for the post-Trump era. Absolutely. And what you said absolutely uh, makes sense when you look at the poll numbers, especially after poor congressional election results, especially with Donald Trump also coming out and uh, recommending people we're on YouTube here, uh, take another procedure that, that he still keeps patting himself on the back of. When you look at that situation, the poll numbers weren't there. DeSantis was polling very close to where Donald Trump was, and then came the prosecutions. Then came the overwhelming amount of just unfair legal lawfare that was waged against him, which made everyone say, hey, um, what they're doing here is wrong. They're, they're going out of their way to try to stop him. We got to coalesce. We got to go behind them because if they take him down, they can take anyone down. And I think that's the bigger kind of learning lesson here, because if, if they're allowed to stop Donald Trump, they essentially it's essential. It's essentially game over for the American public. There, there's no going back from this as they have cemented their rule and control and domination over the people of this country. They're going to say now your voice doesn't matter. Your voice, your vote doesn't matter. What what you want. We don't care anymore. This kind of even delusion of, of democracy that we used to previously have before, that doesn't matter anymore. You are our property. We get to do whatever you want. Your voice, we don't even care what you have to say. We, we've had crafted elections or, or like the Overton window of, of candidate options has always been very limited. So from my vantage point, there is somewhat of a positive in this in that people are starting to question the legitimacy of this entire regime, this entire system. If you didn't learn that after 2020, well, welcome. Welcome to the team. But to, to Mike's point, I am that voter that is not a big fan of Donald Trump because of what happened in 2020. And and I am I am definitely being put in a position of defending this guy a lot more than I'd like to, uh, just simply because 
anybody that has the regime go against them this hard, I have to give a good look at. I've said repeatedly, the only chance you have of me voting for Donald Trump after what he did during 2020 is if he's if he's campaigning from prison. I was joking when I said it, and now I think it might actually happen. It's 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 a wild. It's just unbelievable. No, you can understand now how Marion Barry won you know re-election for DC mayor from prison after the uh, FBI cocaine sting. You know, if you remember the B set me up uh, fiasco, it's a very funny video where you know the FBI did the sting with involving you know hookers and um, drugs and you know. Guy goes to jail and wins from prison. As a, you know, in a lot of people, are like how is that even possible? Well, you know, when when you get it set up and the and all the forces, you know, the Confederacy of dunces are all aligned against the same person, you start to see that person is a martyr and a genius instead of uh, you know instead of somebody with a, a checkered past. Absolutely, we have a super chat from I'm not your buddy guy who said this is how everyone should have responded yesterday, specifically talking about Vivek Ramaswamy, and and yeah, I agree, but they didn't. We had Ron DeSantis that just a couple of moments ago was asked about this very specific situation. Would he withdraw himself from the Colorado GOP nomination? This is what he had to say. And real quick, fellow GOP 2024 presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy saying he will remove himself from the Colorado ballot unless Trump's eligibility is restored. Would you do the same? No, I think that's just playing into the left. Um, I think the case will get overturned by the Supreme Court, but I've qualified for all the ballots. I'm competing in all the states and I'm going to accumulate the delegates necessary. That's the whole name of the game in this situation. But I do anticipate that that decision was political and will get reversed. All right, Governor Ron DeSantis, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Yeah, that's... uh, Week is saying it nicely. Yeah. Uh, Well, on YouTube, I'll I'll see what I really feel later. It's it's, it's kind of pathetic. It's kind of cowardly because there's a lot at, at stake here. And him saying, I qualified... Uh, 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 okay, yeah, yeah, you did, but but so did Donald Trump, uh, and Donald Trump is disqualified because of charges that he wasn't found guilty of. So, so obviously something is n- not happening here. That's fair. Clearly, you're having an advantage over him now. You need to come out and say, you know what? Let's let's equal out the playing field here. Playing field here. I'm not going to have these Democratic members of the Colorado Supreme Court give me a one up on my political opposition. That's the right move to make here. That's the move Vivek is making. DeSantis? Nope. Nikki Haley? You could bet your bottom dollar. Hell no. Chris Christie? I, I think it's pretty clear where he stands himself. What do you, what do you guys think about this response here? And and what's your response to, to DeSantis saying this? Well, you know, I don't really... It's very symbolic what Vivek was doing. And like I said, it's it's part of that Trumpism after Trump strategy. I, I don't know that it actually makes a difference if everybody else were to take themselves off the ballot in in any sort of substantive way. I'm not even sure symbolically that if there were to be that cascade, because you know Nikki Haley's going to stay in no matter what. I mean, she does. she's not even tied to the you know, the necessity to sort of sew up the base in the way that DeSantis is. And let me just say that I think DeSantis has been a phenomenal governor of Florida. He's been probably the best governor of my lifetime in any state for as long as I've been alive. I He actually forced me to revisit many of the excuses I used to make for other politicians because of how he was able to just get a lot of really common sense things done, yeah. whether that was DEI, whether that was on COVID, 
whether that was even taking on huge multinationals like Disney. Yeah. I've never seen a, a the, the school board stuff, the, the Zuckerbucks, the elections, that that's like next level amazing leadership that he showed here in Florida that made me move here, especially when it comes to allowing constitutional carry as well. This man, as governor, did an incredible job. And I agree he, with you. He even got the Soros back DA fired. Yeah, it was it's incredible. One thing after another, everything that you're like, ah, you know, the system's too strong. We too high expectations for the other other governors. DeSantis goes in there, he's like, you know what, actually, you're not going to qualify for Florida State pension funds. How about that, buddy? And like that immediately got big corporations to to buckle. That actually set off a whole other cultural wave. It had all these other, you know, huge, huge impacts. So I can't sing DeSantis's praises as a governor highly enough. Um, you know, at the national level, it's tough because what we're seeing is is he's he's being propped up by the military industrial complex and by the State Department, the Defense Department, and the CIA folks because of his positions yep. on Ukraine and because of his his position. You know, the the compromise with DeSantis is, listen, we're we're going to give the foreign policy blob their cut. They're they're we're going to make we're going to you know sacrifice the, you know the the baby to the altar of you know the the blob who dominates Washington. Walk. But in return for that, we are going to get some dumb domestic priorities accomplished. We are going to roll back some of the excesses of of DEI, some of the some of the you know tyranny stuff around everything from public health to to maybe even free speech stuff. Uh, and so you know that's sort of the the compromise position DeSantis has always represented, but. That that relies on having mass popular support at the populist base level, but then financial support from, you know, the the, the Ken Griffins of the world, if you will. For, and and this is not even this is not to badmouth them them, but it, the fact is is his donors rely on him being anti-Trump when it comes to foreign policy, national security, democracy promotion, all that stuff. So. We're watching this guy who I think has good intentions in his heart be torn around the practicalities of running for president when you are not a billionaire like Trump was. I mean, this guy was a was a JAG officer and, you know, didn't have a, a whole enterprise to be able to bankroll himself. And he didn't have, a, you know, he didn't have the same network that, that Trump did from 50, you know, 50 years in any number of, of businesses from casinos to real estate to to entertainment, to TV, to tabloids. So he's especially reliant on donors and especially reliant on donors from that military industrial complex class. So I, I'm i sort of looking at DeSantis like, you know, you're, <laughs> we see that you're torn. We see that this is ripping your own ethos apart. You're making a bunch of really boneheaded moves here. Um, but, you know, I don't know how to process it because... The system is so rigged. We're in such a mafia state. Uh, it's hard for me to ha gin up the sort of hatred that I would ordinarily feel in a situation where I felt like somebody's heart wasn't in the room. I mean, I don't even feel like he's speaking his own words. I feel like it's all being inserted by by donor handlers. But see, this this is the issue. In this populist moment, what we want more than anything is authenticity. And if you come across as being torn between your donors and, and your voters, which I agree with your assessment, he does appear to be torn, then you're you're dead in the water. Yeah, but he's already blown that. 
I mean, he blew that like six months ago. Is sort of the issue. Right? I mean, as I see it, I know. But then, then what's the what's the pathway? There well, is his, path, no... his pathway is Trump gets indicted and you know or gets disqualified, and but so he's the... they prefer they prefer Nikki Haley if they're going to go that route. If yeah, they're going to go was... the neocon route, they like Nikki's the guy. This was DeSantis's mistake because I, I feel like you could run a presidential election in two different ways: be a, a bull in a china shop, be authentic, be crazy, be your full true self, or sell out. He's kind of been doing that in the middle, and, and therefore Trump is more popular than ever because he took that one route. Nikki Haley, she's like, yeah, BlackRock, State Street, I'll get on my knees. I'll do whatever you want, boy. Let, let me know what you want. I'll do it for you. And she has. Uh, she took the full route of, of totally selling out. She's getting she's getting a lot of favorable poll numbers. She's getting a lot of favorable news coverage. Everyone's trying to push and promote her now as her numbers are, are pretty good in New, in New Hampshire, pretty good in Iowa, better than than DeSantis, who everyone's kind of looking at him. And the people who love that authenticity, the, the people who are susceptible to the boomer uh, uh, neocon propaganda, all of them are like, we don't like him because he's not on either one of our sides. So I think this was his major mistake. And the, the second he flip flopped this, I mean, he could have just just, he could have kept it local. He, he didn't need Ken Griffin's money. I, I don't think he did. That's just my perspective. I might be wrong with other people who, who are looking at the political situation. But once he flip-flopped on Ukraine with that Tucker interview, with that Tucker question, it highlighted and showed me everything I needed to know. That if there was enough pressure by the establishment, he would fold and he would do the wrong thing against his own personal beliefs, against the people of America, because someone with money told him to do this. And Tucker Carlson asked him, what's your stance on Ukraine? Are you going to try to end the war? He gave a very political answer. Uh, it wasn't even that strong. But the media criticized him. Ken Griffin came in, put the money on the table. He said, just tell me what to say, buddy. And then he came out with the same kind of establishment neoconservative talking point like every other politician in the neocon base and said, yes, Putin bad, Russia bad, we must stop Russia. After seeing that, I was like, there's no way I want someone like that at the helm of the U.S. government that could be so easily bought off. I can't have that. And um, I used to I used to defend DeSantis. I used to say, hey, this guy, especially when it came to the global sickness three years ago, did an incredible job, way better job than Donald Trump. And I still believe that um, he did. He, he, he did an incredible job when it came to securing uh, essentially a strong Republican base here in Florida. They used to be a purple state. He did an awesome job. But uh, we, we are, as you mentioned, perfectly representing a larger gambit here. We have Donald Trump as president. We have a big potential that they're just going to release another uh, bioweapon. Well, do you yeah. remember DeSantis' yeah. response to the indictment, the first indictment that dropped on Trump? I mean, DeSantis was yeah. saying, well, I didn't read it yet. I don't know. It might be legit. I mean, yeah. you can, if you can pull yeah, up the, the comments. The Vivek, Vivek had it memorized within about 10 minutes of it yeah. being released. The guy, it's unbelievable how how late to the game every step of the way DeSantis's team are, given that he was early to the game when it came to the global health uh, emergency stuff. So it's not like he's incapable of it. It's I honestly think that you're right, that his, his donor base is directing him in a way that is completely catastrophic to your point about whether or not we can have this trade-off of like, okay, we're going to get a fight against ESG and DEI and all this stuff domestically, but we're going to feed the, the mic. We're going to feed the military industrial complex. It's, it's cut a cut of meat. That's not, that's not what the American people want anymore. And, and for, I'm going to spin this positively and say, that's an amazing step in the right direction that the American people have finally said, 
enough of the global police force. I hope that it actually uh, is able to be voted on because I think Trump is that guy for most people. And, and But now- it's not just foreign policy. It's the fakeness. It, it's the artificialness. It's, right. it's him reading the talking points. It, 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 it's him not being authentic with his particular viewpoints. It's him not going after contentious interviews and conversations that are hard and difficult. He has essentially guaranteed and assured his place in a position where he doesn't like to be questioned. He doesn't like hard uh, questions. He doesn't like to, to, to be put on the spot. And he seems allergic to it, which I, is something that you don't want as, as a leader of the free world. And just to finish up my, my, my point that I was trying to make beforehand, I do believe that if Trump is elected, there's a big chance that they're just going to release another bioweapon. And then Trump is going to play into the handbook, probably like he did last time. I hope he learned his lesson. He hasn't said he learned his lesson yet, which is something that's worrisome. Uh, but if, if, let's just say, DeSantis is, is in there, sure, they'll there'll be less DEI, but I think there's a big potential that there there will be World War III. Uh, Nikki Haley, you get DEI and World War III. You get the worst of both options, and you, you get the utter demise of this country as we are also facing a lot of financial ruin. And whoever the next president of the United States will be, there will be a huge uphill battle trying to just make America survive the global challenges that it faces, as there's a lot of crazy international news that we haven't even gone into uh, yet today that, that I think is also worth talking about. But that's just my perspective of how I see things kind of playing out. Either way, things don't look too good for America. I, I, am I a doomer? Am I too blackpilled? Or are you guys less blackpilled or more blackpilled than me? I Go ahead. I'm an inner tumor here. Entertain the entertainment. I'm entertainment pilled on this. I mean, so I mean, this is something Elon talks a lot about, which is like you know the most entertaining outcome is most likely. The fact is, is in 2016, it was insane how many forces were lined up against Trump even even then, and they've escalated the ante here. But you know, the heartening thing is, is if you actually again just going back to the polls, Trump is up by more now than he was in 2016 or 2020 or any point yeah. in history. And, and I think that matters because when you look at his first presidential kind of run, everyone saw him as, as a loser. Everyone saw the poll numbers and they were like, he's going to get obliterated by Hillary. Hillary has this. She's going to win no matter what. And then Donald Trump surprised all of them and shocked them. But this time, they know Trump is coming. They know he's he's a favorite to win. So this is why there was a lot of opposition then. I think there's going to be way more now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I agree that there's going to be, I mean, we already know there's way more opposition. We're seeing it uh, unfold right before our eyes. But I, back to the the point about DeSantis that Luke made, Vivek is the, going the exact opposite. He's he's entering dangerous waters every single day. He's, I mean, we're not dangerous waters per se, but he's done my show. He's done our show. He's done every every independent media outlet. He doesn't, he doesn't turn down any significant interview opportunity. DeSantis, complete opposite. The only people he'll talk to that are contentious whatsoever will be the CNNs of the world, which is like, it's, you know, it's basically play fighting. It's nonsense. Uh, I think that this is, this is not what the American people want anymore. They want authenticity. This is why Trump, despite all of his failings, which are, are multitude, he comes across as being authentic, even though he's, he may not be. I don't even know who the guy is in reality, uh, but he comes across as being authentic because he speaks with fire. He speaks with, with anger and humor, and he says inappropriate things. And it's like Vivek does that with a little bit less of the inappropriateness, but much more acumen and business savvy. DeSantis has just ran from everything, and he's, 
he's done. I mean, he's obviously done as a presidential uh, contender as far as I'm concerned. I think, to your point, Nikki Haley is is the odds-on favorite if they manage to get DeSantis, or get uh, Trump off the ballots. You know, Vivek remind, reminds me of, of Dylan Danis in a certain way. You know Dylan Danis? The guy? <laughs> yes. He's like, yes. Vivek is the Dylan Danis of <laughs> Every like the, day he's the, posting, the Logan Paul fight here. He's <laughs> posting Biden's ex Yeah, he's just like, it's just like one thing after another. I was like, oh, 9-11, how about that? <laughs> oh, I was here to Evan, how about that? It's like Epstein's every, client list, let's get in there too. Let's do this. Yeah, I, I agree. That's a great uh, assessment you know, of the so situation. It's, like it's not even about winning the fight. It's the fact that he's just racking up Insta followers, racking them up. Like, and and that will position him, whatever happens in 2024. For I don't think we've seen the real Vivek yet. I don't think we will for the entirety of this year. I think even the machine is still like, I know he doesn't really mean it. He's just trolling for the fight. He's just doing promotion for his own. What, what do you mean by the real Vivek? Well, what... Imagine a President Ramaswamy and you're in the middle of this, you know, cold, hot war with Russia and you're in the middle of these, you know, tensions in the Red Sea and whatnot. And you face a rebellion from the inside. Your CIA is going to go up against you. Your State Department's going to go up against you. Your your Defense Department's going to double cross you. You're going to be under the surround sound of, of you know, USAID-funded NGOs with destabilizing BLM and Antifa forces, you know, taking to the streets of the White House there on, on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, unless you give the the dog its bone to, you know, not veto a spending bill on more funds to Ukraine. What will he do in that situation? I He can, you know, it's like the Mike Tyson quote, right? Everybody's got a plan to get punched in the face. Mm-hmm. Vivek has not been punched in the face yet. Has, he, has a single suit been filed against him like it has been? Even a defamation suit, even a even the tiniest little bit of lawfare. No, because I, th- I think this is also in part what they were counting on with Elon Musk. No matter his strong talk about freedom of speech, once he was in the arena and got punched, he would become more reasonable, I think is what they were counting on. And I think there, the reason there is something of a light touch with Vivek is because, and again, the, yeah, I know he's been on MSNBC and he's, done, he's gone into hostile territory and done tough interviews, but you don't see this, you know, this cavalcade of just you know, surround sound media about how he's a racist and a Nazi, and he's actually going. If he, if he was polling at twenty percent, I think you'd see that. Well, yeah, I think I think they would press him harder then too, and I think the beginnings of that pressure would reveal more about whether he's willing to compromise. I'm saying it's easy to look like you're not willing to compromise because he's fighting from the underdog spot right now, right? And because he's not a this is this is the same thing with the censorship industry. You know, they targeted. Trump and it, it all looked like it was against conservatives, but you know you look across the pond and these same people were censoring the left wing labor parties under Jeremy Corbyn because he was NATO skeptic and because he wanted to pull back on the military industrial complex. So it's but they didn't target the the leftists in the U.S. because they just didn't get close enough to the left wing mm-hmm. populists because they didn't get close enough to power. And I think with Vivek, they're like, well, listen, mm, he's got a background we can work with. He's talking this smoke because he's trying to take the baton. The best case scenario is he takes the baton, we turn him. And then boom, you know, problem solved. He just betrays the base. And we won't know that, I think, for this year. So I'm just looking at him like this Dylan Danis guy. He's trolling. He's trolling for promotion. And it's it's fun. And it makes you look forward to the fight. And you're like, oh, well, this guy can really back up what he's doing. He's really putting a lot on the line here. But we won't really know that until the Trump era has already subsided. I'm very happy uh, Vivek is around and Danis is around, too, because they make life more interesting. (laughs) And I I do agree with you that he hasn't really been challenged yet, but he will be. 
They're going to try to sue him. They're going to cancel him. They're going to try to destroy him. They're going to try to try to take away his money. They're going to try to take away any kind of semblance of, of any good that he would ever be able to accomplish. And how is he going to respond to this? Well, it's going to be interesting, but I think he already won. I, I, I think he won by, by pushing the Overton window. I think he won by pushing conversations that the American people would never hear unless it was him actually bringing it up. And he actually won people over like Tucker Carlson that when I asked him a couple days ago, I was like, who do you want to see as, as vice president to Donald Trump? His response was Vivek Ramaswamy. That would be a very interesting ticket. It probably won't happen. Uh, politically, it doesn't kind of really uh, align. But with CNN saying that he's going to be the Donald Trump that's going to be here for the next 50 and 60 years, they are freaking out about him in some in some ways. And the conversations that he started, I think, are a major victory for America, for, for the people here in this country. And I love the trash talking. I love I love the the I love the danishes of the world that, that make things that much more entertaining. But we should shift focuses here a little bit as we are still um, about 20 minutes out from Rumble, and we haven't talked about foreign policy yet, which I know is kind of your forte, uh, Mike, here. And I really want to get into that because Joe Biden is saying that he feels younger than uh, 81 as his staff is telling him to slow down. He's saying, hell no. And he might have another war in him, as, of course, now we have an article by the Daily Mail that is talking about how Biden is weighing up a direct military strike against the Houthi rebels inside of Yemen, as of course there have been a lot of turbulent small skirmishes and fights in the region, specifically along a major trade route, which now the United States is sending some military hardware to, as of course the Yemenis Houthi rebels have said and pledged that they will not stop attacking trade ships until the conflict inside of Gaza is ended. Uh, Mike, what's your kind of assessment and analysis of this as there could be another conflict, there could be another war, and, and it could be in the Middle East as the situation with Israel just keeps expanding and growing from here? Yeah, I suspect that this is mostly posturing. I could be totally wrong about that. You know, there, there's this really complex interplay right now between our relations with Saudi Arabia, our relations with Israel, and our relations with Iran. And you have the situation where Saudi Arabia was always this, you know, lifelong, uh, you know, cousin in the Middle East of, of U.S. interests, you know, good, dating back to its formation, essentially. And the Houthis have been, you know, attacking Saudi Arabia. We've always said well, we're going to support Saudi Arabia. And then, you know, the Houthis were backed by Iran. But now you have this situation where the Biden administration, as I see it, is doing this backdoor uh, Iran nuclear deal, if you will. They're doing a back deal, gas deal with, with Iran, I believe. Um, and part of this has to do with Iran basically signing this $400 billion deal with China. And then it's this same company, CEFC China Energy, that Biden was personally partnered with, who's evading U.S. sanctions on that. So I think that the Atlantic Council Network around the Bidens is making money off of Iran's partnership with China. But you have the situation where they they're still trying to regime change the Iranian government. You know, we, we back this thing, this green revolution. If you remember, we had this strange situation last summer where it was said to be this feminist revolution inside Iran, where it was these women in hijabs. Gonna, gonna take them off. <laughs> of course, but they were like backed by like Kurdish rebels with guns who were like fundamentalist, you know, com the, the complete opposite of a feminist revolution. So it's, it's like CIA backed, you know, gorillas with guns backing, uh, you know, fundament fundamentalist sex backing a, you know, third wave feminist 
color revolution from you know it's been the whole thing was completely cooked up to regime change the Iranian regime and you know they have this they have this if they can get a more compliant government in Iran it would be much easier i think for them to run this this scam they're doing with the energy play and i think by weakening the houthis first of all the, there's a lot that saudi arabia has on the biden administration because their ability to control uh, oil, gas and oil prices is something that is going to determine the popularity in part of Biden. You know, it was a big deal when gas, I remember driving through California when gas hit $8 in, uh, in, in Eastern California, it was insane. And that was something, you know, it was $2 when Trump left office. Now that's, that's come down now, you know, Mohammed bin Salman in, in, uh, you know, MBS in Saudi Arabia had this very public rebuke of Biden something like eight months ago. And we became hugely dependent on, on Saudi's, oil politics. And and I think, you know, I saw them sort of make up a little bit at a meeting a month and a half ago. And I suspect that, that this is the Biden administration hinting at favors for Saudi Arabia to try to split this growing alliance actually between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And, but I don't know if it'll come to open war, if they can simply, sh- you know, put enough pressure on the Houthis, crush, you know, Iran's sort of military presence there and make them have a less leverage in terms of their own regime, that might be able to play into the Biden administration's plans to basically help take over Iran and patch up things with Saudi Arabia. Yeah, but that's a conflict that's been going on for uh, quite a long time, especially when it came to the larger proxy war between Saudi Arabia, that the United States was a part of a coalition fighting the, the Houthis rebels inside of Yemen that created a, a massive humanitarian crisis in the specific region. And China came in and said, you guys stop it right now. They brought Iran to the table. They brought, brought Saudi Arabia to the table and said, hey, we're going to be making money here. We're going to be trading. And uh, both of those country said yes so the war ended but but now it looks like it might be even restarted as that is a key strategic trade route and if you look at all major kind of global conflicts they're usually fought over trade routes they're usually fought the first the first bullets are usually fired along the access to resources which uh, i i think is incredibly important to, to note here as china is establishing its foothold in the world through their belt and road initiative they're saying the United States likes to bomb countries and, and fortify democracies. We like to make money. We like to trade. We like colonialism. We like to go into Africa and take their resources away, but also just give them a little uh, back, uh, back a little something. The United States is just going to bomb you. We'll give you back a little something. And, and the third world's like, that's a lot better than being bombed. That's a lot better than the economic hitman coming to my country and destroying my uh, democratically elected leadership that isn't too favorable to the kind of Western foreign policy uh, dictations that are usually pushed onto them. So This is what I've been saying forever. Whatever happened to good old-fashioned bribery? Yes, I, mean, I know. To put it glibly, you know, what we're seeing with the rise of China in terms of prying off our, our partners and allies and even neutrals is this is the difference between diplomacy with carrots versus diplomacy with sticks. Right now, you know, we're competing on things like values. You know, if you don't outlaw, you know, bans on homosexuality, if you don't, you know, reconstitute your entire civil society to be totally captured by NATO, if you don't do this, we're going to sanction you into oblivion. We're going to cut off your aid. We're going to, you know, we're going to punish you. We might put boots in the grounds, call it a humanitarian mission. Whereas China's like, actually, here, here's, a, here's a bunch of money. Okay, let us let us build your ports, and we're gonna we're gonna have a majority ownership. We bomb, it. they buy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and then they rebuild, and then we pay for it. Uh, give them back a little something. Give them a little kickback for frick's sakes. Is that too hard to ask for? Right. Catch more <laughs> flies with the honey than vinegar. I mean, I, this is in China is offering honey. We're offering, you know, 
vinegar, you know, grenade, like shrapnel bombs. <laughs> and and, and uh, cultural exportation of things that we can't mention here on this particular broadcast of people chopping off you-know-what. Uh, can't get into that here, but but if you look at America, that's, that's, that, that, that's a perfect kind of representation of what you described, and it's not advantageous for America's interests or the people of this country. And if you did truly care uh, about America, if you did truly care about the people of this country, you, of course, would be prioritizing uh, a policy that would be beneficial to all the countries that you're working with. You would have peaceful relations. You would have trade. You would have individuals coming together and saying, hey, we're going to work together instead of just feeding Moloch a, a new child sacrifice, a part of the military-industrial complex kind of gambit against the people here. And um, th this is something that's going to be important, especially for the next president of the United States, as, as we have this next article, also from the Daily Mail, that is talking about how Xi Jinping has warned Joe Biden directly that China will unify with Taiwan in a, quote, blunt message during their talks recently in San Francisco. Essentially, the Chinese government saying, hey, Taiwan, it's ours. We're taking it. What are you going to do here? And did Joe Biden even understand that message is what a lot of people are asking themselves as he's not really all there. And whoever the next president of the United States will be, they will have to deal with a very tumultuous, tacitious, trap-like situation with China, with Russia, with a lot of the world, including Iran, and a lot of countries in that region not being that happy with what we have done on the world stage. How does a, a president handle this kind of situation? Vivek has made a very interesting response himself saying, hey, we got to be strong against China. we got to show them that we're not going to allow them to invade Taiwan what do you guys think about that approach here? And is that the right approach here? Or is there another kind of carrot that we could offer rather than just, again, offering up a stick? I've, I've been very complimentary towards Vivek for this entire couple months, but definitely this show. So let me be critical now. I think that he's dead wrong when it comes to being tough on China. I think that it, it leads us into yet another basically cold war with another nuclear power. I have no interest in doing so. Taiwan is more than capable of defending itself simply because the only reason that they want Taiwan is because of these advanced microchip processors, which they can sabotage and also a bombing campaign would defeat the purpose. As far as I'm concerned, what what is the what is the fear here? Okay, China takes Taiwan. They then have control over these these highly advanced semiconductors. The only reason that they would withhold them is if they want to have a World War Three. So they're going to continue to trade. They're going to sell them. I like we can we can create uh, other options when it comes to competition for these like. Instead of instead of risking nuclear holocaust, how about we just build the the plants that are capable of making these chips? It, it just doesn't make sense to me. Maybe maybe you have shed some light for me. Yeah, you know, I'm not convinced this issue is going to come to to a head in the next five years. It might. I might be wrong about that. It seems like you know any day possibly. But then, as I see it, China's best. You know, they are outgrowing us at an enormous pace, and especially when it, when you look at their naval shipbuilding capacity. And their, you know, so-called aerial, you know, was it uh, area access denial capacities to just basically stop U.S. ships or U.S. missiles from being able to, even being able to enter, you know, within a certain radius of of parts of the South China Sea. I think they're expanding that program. I think they're pushing us out, but I don't think that they will be confident with any sort of bold action until their lead is so big that it is cartoonish to even go up against it. And I think they're in the early stages of, of building that. You already see a, a huge amount of U.S. Army War College sort of hysteria about 
uh, you know, how our naval fleet is dwindling and they're able to you know, mass produce this. And then, you know, of course, the regional issues, I mean, they can, when they make these ships, they're already in the zone, so to speak, whereas we need to, you know, ride out 5,000 miles and whatnot. And our, our, our only access depends on basically pliant allies like the, like the Philippines and, and you know, Australia, New Zealand. And, you know, as, as I see it, I, China will be in a much better position to do this in 5, 10, 15 years when it would be a joke for the U.S. to even attempt it. Right now, I think, would be a very fragile time. You know, right now, the U.S. is trying to create a sort of... <laughs> it's kind of funny, right? Because NATO is the North Atlantic, uh, but there there have been all these talks about setting South up a Pacific. Certain, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, the joke is like the the moment we land on the moon, it's going to be declared part of NATO. <laughs> and you know, there there are a lot of financial interests. It's not just the U.S. It's the U.K. It's all of Europe you know, who are, who are dependent on these on these chips. And China is you know they just overtook us in Europe in like 2020 for, as a as a trading partner, and, and the graph is going parabolic. You don't fight against an equal. Right now, we're relatively equal on, on military capacities. But you know, as as they pull ahead economically, their own military complex will 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 be more formidable, and uh, you know that that will be the time to do it. I I don't see it coming to the head in the next the, five. years. The only thing that gives me pause is that because we are embroiled in so many other conflicts right now, I mean, funding primarily, but we also have obviously bases all over the world that they may look at us and say. You know, you're right. Five, ten years from now, we're a lot stronger militarily, but America's culturally is divided as ever. Their elections are in turmoil. They're they're already funding multiple fronts of a potential world war. This is the time that they will like. They're all bark, no bite, and I, they may be right. Uh, but I, I just hope that they don't risk. Well, that. I, I think what's going to happen in Ukraine is going to be a very telling sign to how China will approach their next kind of larger endeavor, because they're looking at that situation, and it, it's kind of a very similar situation that would unfold in Taiwan. You have the United States backing one side. You have an adversary with a lot of people, a lot of natural resources, financing, fighting directly another smaller country. What's going to be the result of that? They're watching, calculating everything. The Chinese, very good at their calculating. I don't mean to generalize here, but but it's true. And geopolitically, Taiwan is very important for China as a defensive position because otherwise an invasion of mainland China is very easy unless you have a set of islands that allow China to kind of defend itself from its mainland territory. So I, I think it's, 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 it's only a matter of time. I, I, we have to go over to Rumble. On Rumble, I want to specifically ask you if you think China is a paper dragon, dragon or if it's a very serious threat um, against this country and its people, and if you kind of share the perspective of individuals like Jack Posobiec on this issue. I want to ask you that. I want to talk to you specifically also about the CIA and music festivals. I want to go deep down the rabbit hole, especially when it comes to Wayman. We're going to get into all of that, plus a lot more, all on Rumble.com. Rumble.com has been very nice enough to, of course, feature us on the front page right now of their website. We are, I think we're the number one suggested video from uh, the, the entire front page. Yes, yeah, we are. So just number go one, baby. Just go over to rumble.com right now. We will, of course, be having more of a free-flowing, honest conversation. Every time I'm on YouTube, I feel like I'm, I'm walking a tightrope, and I'm like, oh, crap, don't say this, don't say that. Okay, I, I can't. There's so many things. I, I, I am... 
I am uh, constipated here on YouTube. I will have full release on Rumble <laughs> along with everyone else here as we will finally be able to speak freely, not in the technocratical digital gulag that is YouTube, Alphabet, Pentagon-linked, weaponized social media where we sadly cannot speak freely to you. We can on Rumble. The conversation usually is, uh, as the young people say, lit uh, on that particular <laughs> platform. Go over right now. I'm going to be cutting the stream off on Facebook. I'm going to be cutting the stream off on YouTube. Go over. We got another super chat by Harry Toe saying Rumble is better. YouTube sucks. Thank you, Harry Toe one. I appreciate that Rumble, uh, that super chat. We also have another one coming in from mysuperchat.com. I'm going to read that one all on Rumble. Mike, before we go over there, where can people find you and support your work as we transition? Uh, not in the in, not in the trendy way, but in the real way from YouTube to Rumble. You can find me on X slash Twitter at Mike Ben Cyber. That's one word at Mike Ben's Cyber. And my foundation is foundationforfreedomonline.com. I want to talk about that too, because you're doing some really awesome work, uh, working with some really cool friends of mine as well uh, with this nonprofit. So let's talk about that CIA music festivals. Clint, really quick. At Liberty Lock Pod, Clint Russell, Liberty Lock Down is the show, and Tower Gang is also happening later tonight at 9.30. Check us out. Steph, you talk too much. Steph, we are changed. Let's go. Let's go. All right, we're, we're going to expect more from you, Stephanie, uh, on, on, on Rumble. She's doing a great job doing the button pusher. We love Stephanie. Uh, I can't thank you guys enough for uh, the Super Chats, the Rumble Rants. Uh, we will be taking your phone calls also on LukeUnfilter.com. Go right now. What are you waiting for? There's no reason. People are asking for a link. Hey, what's the link? Rumble.com. That's it. <laughs> That's not a link. YouTube punishes you for even just linking in the comment section. All you have to do, R-U-M-B-L-E dot C-O-M. That's all you got to do. Top left. Top. That's all you got to do. Number one video recommended by Rumble. Shouts out to Rumble for all the incredible, really important things they're doing for free speech. Go out there. Support them with your clicks, with you voting, with your attention. And it, and it truly does mean a lot to us as we have a little bit of a delay. I love you guys. Stay tuned for more here on YouTube. But don't stay Rumble. Go to Rumble right now as we have a little delay here. And there's a lot of things that I wanted to get into here on Rumble. There's one specific viral video happening on the Whatever podcast with uh, uh, women uh, being called out here. I want to get into that. We're, we are also going to be talking about CIA music festivals, but just continuing the conversation that we just had on YouTube specifically. I just wanted to, to ask you this, Mike, because um, I'm kind of curious about your perspective, continuing the conversation with what's happening in, in China and U.S. foreign policy related to it. There's two kind of viewpoints. A lot of people see China as a paper dragon. They see a lot of problems with its population. They see a lot of problems with its resources. Other people like Jack Posobiec see China as the number one threat against America. Where do you align on those two different kind of perceiving viewpoints when it comes to uh, addressing, especially with, with your previous position at the U.S. State Department? How do you personally see China? Yeah, if you think China is a paper dragon, you're you're sniffing layers of copium that I, I admire. And I'd ask you if you can give me some of your surplus <laughs> because I would sleep a lot better at night. Uh, Ch China is dominant everywhere right now. I mean, I had a really shocking experience. So when I got to the cyber desk at State, there's something called the International Telecommunications Union, the ITU. It's the largest international body in 
world history, basically. It was way, you know, way before UN. It was, I think it was like 1830s or 1850s. I think 1850s when it was started, you know, to initially be able to have, you know, telecom. But before it was even telecom, it was just telegraph when you just had signal messages being able to bounce, you know, in a transatlantic way. And, you know, you get in there and we have all these things we want to accomplish in telecom and IT and tech and and, uh, and and cyber and everything connected to the internet. We get you know get in there. I think okay, all right, we're we're, we're the U.S. We're, we're probably going to run the ITU. You get in there. You see that the chief is from China. The all forty African countries vote in a block with China. We're we're outvoted in in every way possible on the world stage on tech issues by China. And they have they have bought the loyalties of more of the world than we have. There's a lot of simmering resentments against us that are not against China. And there's this very weird situation where, like, you you get there to the desk. You're like, okay, we're probably – America's the greatest. We've, you, know, you, you think we, we probably run things. And uh, we did not run the ITU. And and even at the, the tech level, you know, there was uh, – you know, Huawei was, was highly ascendant at the time at, uh, in terms of IT tech infrastructure. There, there is this – there's a race to try to have U.S. technology compete with China, but the problem is, is we don't even have U.S. national champions. So, for example, on 5G, um, when, you know, when I was there in 2020, we didn't. China was had 5G with Huawei, and they were offering basically high speed, you know, internet and and all, all sorts of, of tech innovations on on phones that we couldn't compete with. So we had to make partnerships with like nokia and samsung you know, we, we had to go to finland and south korea to try to prop up a proxy to compete with china because nobody no u.s champion even came close on on the tech side you look at all of our math champions right now in the u.s they're, they're chinese you look at the the highest performing groups at, at the education level you know at the at the post-grad level you look at you know we were just talking about the taiwan issue and one of the reasons that i don't think it'll come to a head in a military sense in the next five ten years is in part because China is also buying up California. They're, they're, you know, we're relying on, on Chinese investors for, for port construction, and we're selling off assets. We just sold U.S. steel to Japan. I know that's not China, but it's essentially you know, the, the same region, and I think it's highly symbolic. You know, Hunter Biden was personally auctioning off uh, LNG ports in Louisiana to CEFC China Energy, the same, the same firm that's evading our sanctions. So Yeah, there's a lot of business dealings between uh, the, the Bidens and uh, China. And more importantly, uh, Ron DeSantis had to sign a bill preventing China from buying more land here in, in Florida. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I cut you off. No, the, the, and they may be one of the reasons that our, our, you know, our, our treasury is the float that it does. You know, they, buy, they buy a huge amount of of, uh, of of U.S. Treasuries. I mean, they they are buying us and, in a sense, bailing us out of our own, you know, of our own issues, and that is causing more and more reliance. And it, one of the things that the military-industrial complex frets about is that they can't just go, you know, full dial it up to eleven against China like they can against Russia because of all the financial entanglements. And then, you know, it's it's no small deal that Europe now has more, uh, a stronger trade relationship with China than the U.S. That trade relationship is the first thing that gets severed in the event of a security conflict. And when they lose more by siding with us against China than siding with China against us because they lose more, do- they lose more dollars siding with us, that creates military affinities. That creates you know s- security attachments. Uh, and the rate at which this is happening, and then you also look at all the, the domestic issues that we have that China doesn't. None of this, this you know, DEI type stuff would, would, would fly in China. They're, to, they're, com, 
They are so meritocratic. And not only that, you look at the high-speed rail situation, you look at, at the way that they're, they take pride in their cities, they are on a growth trajectory, and even the high tech stuff. It's it's you know the whole Shenzhen. Re- the, every single metric you can think of right now, in, as I see it, is skating towards China. And the the dysfunction that we're having in terms of our own domestic politics, you know, we we were making comparisons to you know banana republics in, in Latin America. Of course, that comes from you know United Fruit, which was a U.S. you know <laughs> Department of War proxy. To you know, we, we sent in. Yeah, these 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 corporations we call it a banana republic because they were run by U.S. corporations. They weren't even really a, a real government. But I think China is looking at the U.S. situation as we as we look at, at a, a certain you know, third world type thing. I mean, you look at the San Francisco example. Damn, you think they look at us like we're that low? I think it's starting to get that. I think we are in the adolescent phase of that. I wow. Think, I th- well, you can go back That's and you can read. Man. There were Chinese Politburo memo, memos about uh, you know Chinese dignitaries visiting like New York City in the 1990s. Some of these are amazing to read. And they were making calls even then about how our our, our societies would be divided and you know how these <laughs> they were not necessarily bullish on the direction America was going because of some of its own um, you know cultural forces. And we're now those were sort of the infantile stages of those. China had just had just joined the, the WTO. It had not yet had you know its big Olympics come out. But I would say we're in the adolescent stages of that, and and all these trends are, are likely to accelerate. And I think that even now in our own domestic politics, do you guys remember there was this Chinese professor, Deng, Deng something? I'll I, I'm blank on the last name, but you know he gave a a talk in front of Chinese students in 2020 about you know how difficult it was to to fix the Trump administration because of their old friends were all sort of. You know, uh, in the in the Democrat Party or in the neocon wing of the Republican Party, but you know, he to to their own people, they talked about it with so much confidence that they could that they could fix the typical system here. And you know, if if Trump doesn't get in office and a tough stance is not taken, and not even not even a tough stance against them, but a tough stance to invest in ourselves. I mean, you made the point about about chip manufacturing. And our manufacturing base being totally sold off, our, our labor being being outsourced, all that China is building its own. And and that is that is so strong and sustainable. And and we've done the exact opposite. And you know, we're we're we're, we're sowing. Almost know, everything we're sowing. Is, is the exact opposite. As in China, you have a social credit score, you have you know political uh, opponents arrested, but the streets are clean and safe. Here in America, we have a social credit score system. Our political opponents are arrested, and the streets are absolutely dirty and filled with criminals. Right. <laughs> the, the same thing goes for American foreign policy, which is absolutely freaking ridiculous. And uh, by by the way, we're gonna have to switch over to a different topic because I really want to talk about the CIA and music festivals, and I know you've been on the tangent about that before. Before we do that, we just broke four thousand live viewers on Rumble. I Whoa. think this is the highest live stream that we ever had. So uh, thank you, Mike, for for coming. Thank you for everyone for uh, sharing this broadcast. Let's get it, let's get it to five k. I'm not satisfied. I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled until. 
then we're going to have 6,000 and 7,000. That's the rat race of life that, of course, a lot of people are caught up in. But I'm, I'm, I'm just grateful for this partnership with Rumble. I'm grateful to be able to work with them one-on-one. I'm grateful to stand behind individuals that put their money where their mouth is. And they're saying, you know what? You guys want to censor us? You guys want to destroy our speech? You want to destroy our fucking life? Fuck you! No! And Rumble is doing that more than anyone else, especially with their lawsuits, especially backing individuals that governments literally contact and say, hey, we don't like him. Cancel him. Rumble responds once again. Fuck you. I love that energy. I love that defiance. And I wouldn't want to be in any other fucking position than here on Rumble.com. So shouts out to them and shouts out for all the incredible stuff that they do. We got one Rumble rant by Ricky Ace One saying, quote, free the code will not work. The programmers will be targeted and lobbied by big tech. The average person cannot follow code. We got another uh, MySuperChat.com from Jeff Weldstrone Damas saying, 11 months with no cigarettes, thanks to Luke and Phil and the Easy Way book. That's a great book. Quote, here's a kickback to the money you saved me. Thank you, guys. Both of you are awesome. Also, can the 14th be turned around and used on the South Carolina, on on the Supreme Court decision of Colorado? Can the 14th Amendment be used on that? I think so. I think that's I think that's the grounds by which they'll overturn it. But I mean, just to give some people a little history, I'm no I'm no Civil War expert, but it's my understanding that the Southern states kicked uh, Abraham Lincoln off the ballots, and he still won the election. And shortly followed was the Civil War. That was what I couldn't say on YouTube, but uh, that's my gravest concern: is that even if Trump does win, I think that it'll be a civil war in the sense that the the deep state will be coming after him i mean then assassinations everything else is on the table at that point you tell me if i'm crazy is that is that not a distinct possibility before before we go there i just i also just wanted to remind people if you are a member of lucanfilter.com you get the chance to call in in a few minutes and ask us any questions you want so if you are a member of lucanfilter.com just make sure to go into the telegram channel and let me know that you are willing and able and want to call in i am paying attention to the Telegram channel right now. Sorry, Clint. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, well, yeah, Clint, to your point, can you look up, uh, Luke, the name of the guy who's the head of crew? Uh, that's Norm Eisen's outfit, but I think his name is Norman Bookbender or Noah Bookbender, some, something like that. He's the, the president there. He's the guy who was doing these, you know, double twist, stunting, touchdown dances yesterday about uh, the Colorado ruling. And, you know, but he's also on the... Crew? This, you said Yeah, the... crew. That's the name of, the, of this, the lawfare outfit. Um, C-R-E-W? Yeah, C-R-E-W. If you just look up like crew or, you know, like legal and maybe the name Norman, I think, or Norman or Noah. Anyway, it's it's on my timeline somewhere. Norman the, Elson? Well, it's, it's like books on it. Don't, don't worry about it. Got it. So, but he's also on the advisory board. This new, you've, if you remember, there's this domestic intelligence board that was set up with, you know, like James Clapper and all these, you know, CIA guys were put on this domestic board by DHS uh, that was newly created a couple months ago. And, he, and the guy leading these lawsuits is is on that board, I mean, the same DHS, you know, thing for surveilling domestic extremism. So wow. I, I do think if they were to set up a false flag thing like that, you know, the idea would be to purge the Republican Party of MAGA elements so that all that's left of it is Nikki Haley. I don't think they want to just go after like Republicans. I think what they want is they want the George Bush era back. Yeah, this is why you got Reed Hoffman, you know, the the left wing mega billionaire, and you have J- Jamie Dimon, you know, uh, backing Nikki Haley. These guys are not these guys are not Republicans. But what they want is 
You know, the American people were always sort of like the tiebreaker between the, the left and right sides of the blob. There was sort of a gentleman's agreement that, look, well, well you'll have your careers in the State Department, we'll have our careers. We, we, we have our shared money pools through the, the National Endowment for Democracies, I, you know, IRI wing and its NDI wing, and we'll all get our cut. But, you know, it's about who's number one and number two as opposed to who's knocked out the box. And the Trump threat is that it knocks them out the box. And so as I see it, there is that possibility it, it could escalate it to that. But, you know, there, there also is the possibility that if they if Trump does thread the needle and pull through and win, if there is no Trump heir apparent, and this sort of gets back to the Vivek conversation, if they can simply destabilize the presidency and have him be a lame duck for four years, you know, that might be a way to ride it out so that, okay, you've had your fling with populism. Now Nikki, now a Nikki Haley, now a DeSantis, you know, can 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 slot in. There, if if he can be neutered or destabilized, he'll be no matter even if he wins, he'll still be under these state lawsuits. If he wins, you bet that the AFL CIO and Black Lives Matter and and the Antifa hordes and these new these new climate corps they just set up, the Sunrise Movement, the shutdown DC, Media all matters, these all people. I did a walkthrough video of the street leading up to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue just two weeks ago when I was in DC and I went to the went back to the White House just to taken in that street is called black lives matter plaza and the afl cio which you know used to be called the afl cia by by 1960s radicals because it was always used as the destabilizing battering ram to shut down foreign governments by getting hundreds of thousands of people on the street meanwhile the afl had a signed agreement with the chamber of commerce to call off protests the day joe biden was announced the winner i mean you have this this multi-million strong union in the country who's parked right there on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue on Black Lives Matter Plaza. They will be able to potentially shut down the ability to govern like a normal person. And if he calls in the National Guard and then there's bloodshed because of that, then that's going to escalate it. Then they are going to have you know even more lawfare. It's going to be F- FBI Russiagate on steroids. There, there's a lot of ways that I could see them saying, ah, you see... You know, this is why we did this lawfare thing to begin with. The second term was a disaster. Now we really have to go back to a Nikki Haley type thing. I almost think that that might be the way that they allow Trump to win without, you know, having a sort of JFK 2.0 sort of moment. I, I agree with that, Reed. But uh, my, <laughs> I mean, my concern is that you're once you have already fed red meat to the red populace, uh, I don't think that you can put them you can't put that genie back in the bottle like they're they're not gonna go from trump to biden to trump to nikki haley <laughs> like i just think they're they will have been activated in a way that they'll be looking towards tucker carlson to be the president in 28 not nikki haley i think i honestly think that the the neocon brand of conservatism is completely fucking dead and may god have mercy on its soul and i'm i'm grateful for that uh, I don't know if you if you disagree, Luke, but I, th- I I just don't see how you could ever get forty you know seventy million plus people to turn out and vote for someone like Nikki Haley. I just don't see it happening. Well, well they have a lot of tricks up, up of their sleeves. They have uh, artificial intelligence. They have the social media companies. I, I I think as long as we have Twitter and Rumble, they, they can't be that successful. And I think this is why they're attacking it, trying to get rid of any kind of outside information that they don't tightly control. Al Gore recently freaked out and said. Uh, you know, people being able to talk to each other is a threat against democracy. That lying, central, controlling motherfucker is afraid of you just being able to talk to each other. The populist ideas, when an idea 
time has come. There's nothing that could stop it. And the idea of, of populism, of actually representing the American people and not just the private multinational corporate banksters behind it all, that, that's an idea that I think resonates with so many people. I think it's alive more than ever. I think we are seeing the remnants of the, the old school Tea Party that we saw under Ron Paul. But as you mentioned, that Tea Party was subverted. And it was made into a kind of an establishment, right-wing, neocon, uh, bullshit party that that essentially was also destroyed from within. So I think anything is possible. But this 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 kind of idea, this fire of liberty, I I, I think is is burning bright. And with individuals like Chris Pawlowski, Elon Musk, with Tucker Carlson, with Joe Rogan, with Dana White, with Kid Rock coming out and saying, fuck you, I'm not coming along and going along with your bullshit. That right there is truly highlighting a situation that I think we we, we didn't have before. This this is why I don't buy the narrative that the Elons and Tuckers and uh, Trumps of the world are all controlled opposition. It's like, if you want to defeat your enemy in this cultural war, you should be doing every what you were doing in 2020 when you were banning all of us and ultimately jeopardizing, uh, you know, Twitter as as a platform because uh, it was such a cutout for like every th- three letter agency. That's how you win. Allowing Elon to come in there and and I haven't feared being suspended or banned in over a year now. I mean, not at all. I don't think that that is uh, that that tells me he's not controlled up. Same with Trump. You don't you don't impeach him twice. You don't. Uh, kick him off the ballot. You don't you know, threaten him with 700 plus years in prison. You don't do all these things if he's just controlled up. There's there's another level to this that I, I can't exactly wrap my head around. But my, my point is that I think that you have given hope to the masses in this country that have felt unheard for the longest time. And I think that is going to bite them in the ass. I think they did not plan on that. And you can't you can't like defang us at this point. Like we're all fired the fuck up and I don't think anyone's going anywhere. So we'll see how it plays out. We'll see. It's going, to, it's going to be very interesting. And in related subverting the masses news, we have, of course, a video that you released, Mike, that I thought was very fascinating at a music festival. I think this was a, a music festival that I was supposed to go to, too, and then I canceled last minute. Oh. It was over at one of the islands yeah, there during Art Basel. My friend had a wild fucking time there. Holy Everybody cow, the stories that he insane. had there. I was literally like, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go. And then and then I had a flight to Phoenix the next day. I was like, I, I got to work. I make you feel bad, but it was like literally one of the coolest parties I've ever been to in my life. That's literally what my friend said. And they, and they were like, they, they had no service, but they were calling me from the party being like, fuck it, just drop everything, just fucking go. They got back here at like five o'clock in the morning and fucking woke me up. What, and what, I was, what was so cool about it? Come on, film me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play I, the video right now. Right, it's, right. It's a, yeah, you can see it in the background. So it's too loud for like a proper walk and talk. But I want to talk about the role of large gatherings in regime change operations, okay? One of the reasons that the State Department and the Central Intelligence Agency were such big fans of throwing concerts and mass events in Germany and in Italy and in other places during the Cold War was that getting people into a giant venue on the street somewhere, a hundred or a couple hundred thousand people all together Music cuts through differences. See, they have a big problem when it comes to creating a regime change sentiment because often the coalitions together hate them, hate each other. So they developed a technique that they sort of started to call get him out. Very good points. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to play the full video. I had VIP tickets to that place too. 
And I was like, no, I got to be responsible. I got to work. And I'm like, next made, year, made next a fucking year. mistake. We'll, let's, let's go together next year. I, we'll make some content. Absolutely. I'll be there. My, my, I had friends that had so much fun there and they rubbed it in. They came back. They were like literally like streaking here naked afterwards. And I'm like, you assholes. Like, thanks. Thanks for, for, for <laughs> like, they had a lot of fun. Anyway, um, when you bring up music festivals and, and the CIA, the first thing that kind of comes to my mind is the CIA shooting up music festivals like they did in Las Vegas and they covered up. But, but there's also another cultural aspect here as the CIA has been hiring a lot of actors. They hire a lot of musicians. They hire a lot of celebrities. They hire a lot of media moguls as well. And when you look at their kind of larger influence on culture, when you look at their their influence on on entertainment, I, I think it's fair to say when we look at all the entertainment around us right now, a lot of it has been weaponized. They did it before. What's your assessment to what they did before and what they might be doing now? Yeah, so... You know, the, the sort of deeper you go into lore around the State Department and the CIA, you begin to see everything is really an instrument of statecraft or can be used as such and often has a really storied history with it. So in terms of music diplomacy or the our overt you know, uh, State Department or, or covert CIA use of music and musicians for statecraft purposes is, is really kind of amazing. So in the 1940s, we had something called jazz diplomacy. This is right when World War II ended and all these African nations had suddenly become sovereign. They'd had their own government governance structures and they had affinities for Soviet style communism all throughout uh, you know, Central and Sub-Saharan Africa and even, even Northern Africa as well. And so we, the State Department, used jazz musicians, black jazz musicians like Louis Armstrong and dozens more. This is all on the State Department's website. They were, they had their expenses paid for by the State Department. They were basically used as assets to have these cultural ambassadorships with African uh, regional leaders and community leaders and, and heads of state in order to try to communicate that the U.S. is not a sort of racist colonial state and actually U.S.-style capitalism and being drawn into the Euro-Atlantic axis is preferable and will be better for the people of Africa than being drawn into Soviet-style communism. So you had this jazz diplomacy program in the 1940s. In the 1950s, you had something called the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was created by the Central Intelligence Agency to create a, a cultural ambassadorship for a sort of cultural uh, pressure exertion on, on Europe, on, on, this, on the Soviet Empire, on Latin America, on Africa, on Southeast Asia. And what it was was... It was this this hodgepodge of basically assets in the arts and music world. And this started, so at the time, there was this classical music rivalry between Russian composers and American composers. composers. You had folks like Shostakovich in, in Russia who were hugely popular. And you had this divide in terms of what Europe was listening to. So the CIA flew the Boston Symphony Orchestra over to Paris in 1952 to, to do concerts for the Parisians to defeat the socialist candidates and bring people towards, you know, a more capitalist axis by having a sort of cultural affinity for American culture. They did the same thing in 1954. They organized a series of conferences, uh, uh, musical conferences and performances in, in Rome, Italy. This would stretch on in Germany. It was, it was huge. And they organized all of the major outdoor concerts in, in West Germany and in Berlin to try to to try to get people in Germany to, you know, be drawn into the Euro-Atlantic axis, and even, and that's just at the sort of cultural affinity point. You know, I mean, imagine if your entire playlist was just Chinese musicians, and you just 
effing loved, you know, the music China was pumping out. Imagine if all, you know, 21 of your top 21 Spotify plays or whatever were just like raging, awesome, next level Chinese music artists. That would that would automatically draw you into a state of of, of soft affinity for for Chinese uh, culture. But then you would also that would translate into events. You would be going to Chinese music concerts. You'd be running your whole crowd. What you do for fun? That would yeah. Dr- China wants to invade. Come on in. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. But then it gets dirtier because music began to be weaponized for regime change operations. So first of all, you know the Azov Battalion in Ukraine gro- grows out of a, a black metal. You know, this, that's a CIA-backed paramilitary group in, in Ukraine that grows out of the black metal scene there. Pussy Riot, if you remember, was this national endowment for, uh, for democracy-funded ru- uh, Russian rock group in, uh, in the sort of 2010-2013 era. Pussy Riot was this group. Now, the National Endowment for Democracy is a group who the Washington Post, no less than, referred to as a CIA cutout in the 1990s. You know, this was a this was a group that was specifically set up by the Reagan administration coming out of the church committee hearings when the CIA's name was dirt because it had been spying on left wing groups and 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 running left wing student news articles to try to sway people to support the Vietnam War. They got busted red handed. The Democrats hated them. Reagan ran on this sort of bipartisan unity unity tickets, how he won 49 out of 50 states the next year. And what he ends up doing is, is he creates this National Endowment for Democracy So to do overtly what the CIA used to do covertly, and this has become our regime change agent par excellence, the State Department, USAID, and the National Endowment for Democracy all create this this surround sound swarm of media and cultural influence in a region. Victoria Nuland said ahead of the 2014 Ukraine coup that they pumped $5 billion collectively into Ukrainian civil society, meaning Ukrainian assets for the State Department to weaponize when we overthrew Viktor Yanukovych in a, in a color revolution there. We drove out the democratically elected president there. Now, so we've, we funded music groups in Ukraine. We funded music groups in Russia with, with Pussy Riot. Now, the idea is, is you get people into the habit of going to these large outdoor events. It simulates being on the streets. This is the end stage of what every color revolution looks like. It's hundreds of thousands of people in the streets in protest. And that's why they love this protest rock. So Pussy Riot's music was all about taking down the regime all the punk all the punk rock concerts that were put on by the by the the cia and the state department proxies in germany during the cold war it was protest rock punk rock type stuff it was down with the machine down with the authoritarianism they have a big problem when they try to organize color revolutions which is that most of the time the groups hate each other they have nothing in common they've got religious differences they've got ethnic differences they've got values differences but if they're all listening to the same music and they're all revering the same the the same uh you know, cultural figures, and they all just have the same common message of get him out. And if you watch this movie, it's called uh, Bringing Down a Dictator. This was a this was made for PBS. It's basically a State Department-made uh, documentary about the color revolution in Serbia. And they talk openly about the strategy of it's not about unifying people in, for what they have in common. You get large masses of people together with a common message, get him out. Whoever's in, in the government, just get them out. That's all we care about. And in the chaos that unfolds, the emerging leaders who are groomed by the State Department become the next president. That's how you had Victoria Newland on hot mic saying, Yatsen Yoke's going to be the next guy, not Klitschko, right. not the other people. So it's just about destabilizing and regime changing. They did the same thing in Cuba. In Cuba, the National Endowment for Democracy funded this group called the San Isidro Movement. Now, this is where it gets really wild because it's going to take it to Art Basel. So this group called the San Isidro Movement was a, were Cuban rappers who were funded by USAID and the National Endowment for Democracy. 
And they came up with this protest anthem called Patria y Vida. It's, it's basically like blood and soil. It's, you know, it's a nationalist anthem to take back the country from the communist government. And this was the soundtrack. If you remember, in about two years ago, there, were, there was the largest Cuban uprising that had, had happened in decades. And this was the anthem, the anthem for that was a soundtrack produced by the Central Intelligence Agency designed to get student groups and young people to take to the streets. And those are part of the lyrics of the song. And what's really wild is, you know, CIA, the largest CIA station house in the entire country for the, the 50 years of the Cold War was all based in Miami. There was a place called, it was called JM Wave. It was, it was where the University of Miami is, currently is. It was the largest CIA station house in the entire country because Miami was, is, our, is our main through point from, to, you know, to Cuba, to the, the, the whole Caribbean, Haiti, uh, you know, Mexico, uh, the you know, Guatemala, Nicaragua, all of that. Miami is the easiest point to coordinate all that. Well, plus, it's also a great place for the drug trade and a central location for a lot of uh, planes <laughs> and boats to, to get into, especially when it comes to, you know, the CIA importing uh, cocaine into this country as well. Sorry, go wait, ahead. I wait, have you to interject. Look, this, look, if you can pull this up, because I don't know if... I don't know if it'll hit as hard if you can't visually see it. I want you to look up the Art Basel exhibit for uh, Patria y Vida. It's like how do you spell P A T R I A space Y space V I D A Art Basel. And I and I want you to pull up on screen what that art exhibit looks like. This V A D A V I D A like life like living la vida loca that sort of thing. Put up so this is Art Basel exhibit. Now again, this is a CIA sponsored musical uh, album. This uh, is Coley Art. This is from uh, two, 22? No, from 2023. The Cuban American. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a bunch of fences uh, together. Uh, is lit it up. fences yes. or is it bicycle racks? Uh, it's bicycle racks. Yeah. It's the symbol of January 6th. Huh. But yes. this is but yeah. this is the CIA backed version glorifying it. There this is again that song was produced by a rap group on the payroll of the most preeminent CIA cutout in our entire arsenal and the largest arts and cultural festival of, of, in all of Miami has a full-on exhibit glorifying it, glorifying the protests in the form of the same bicycle racks that were the, the very visual entity of what treason looked like, we were told, what insurrection looked like here. So this is, again... You know the the sort of duality of regime change operations and the DC blob. They love doing this to other countries. This is their bread and butter of how you throw uh, you throw you know places out of office. The bike rack was the symbol of insurrection here, but when they funded in Cuba, it was the symbol of freedom there. It's fascinating. I, I I've been wanting to ask you this for as long as I've known you were a, a thing. Uh, my my concern has always been that that. We can't really differentiate between who was responsible for the creation and release of, of COVID-19 uh, because it was obviously funded through Europe, but through America with Fauci and NIH. No, and it, was, it was Dr. Fauci, Echo Health Alliance, and essentially uh, intelligence agencies that played a major role right. in it. But the, the reason I, I wanted to ask Mike about this is it, it appears to me that since 2020, we've been going through a domestic color revolution. Uh, at least that's what it feels like. And I'm curious, what is the end game here? And do you have any idea? Like, what are the different power factions that are are, are warring with one another? Uh, do you think that China is actually adversarial to us, given that they, I mean, they were allowing for that research to be happening in their country? Did they release it? Did we release it? Did we release it in tandem? Where do you fall on all this? 
You know, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, I've got educated speculation and a lot of questions, but in, you know, maybe I can just sort of answer it by just kind of going over like what my open questions are. Sure. You know, the, the CIA's role in COVID is an extraordinary, you know, it's an extraordinary constellation map of circumstantial evidence, right? So right off, right off the bat, you know, what Luke was referring to there with EcoHealth Alliance, they got a $53 million grant from USAID which is the top conduit for CIA funds in our entire, you know, blob of, of government funding for, for covert ops. So right off the bat, you have this sort of weird CIA connection to, to EcoHealth Alliance, because what the hell were they doing getting $53 million to do gain of function uh, research, gain of the Pro- prohibited ju- research that had been rejected by DARPA. Yeah. Yeah. Juicing up bat born Corona, the very thing that we ended up saying this thing was, was uh, you know was given fifty three million dollars by the CIA essentially to to start in the first place. Then you have the fact that Event two hundred one was a very strange simulation. You know this was October twenty nineteen, and there's a lot of there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that COVID actually started that month. The, the whole military games yeah, thing, like now, almost I, to the day. Yeah, it's crazy. But even if you accept, okay, well, it started with these you know strange pneumonia like symptoms in China in December. That is just a two month lag. And who was it who, you know, did the lion's share of the talking during segment four of Event 201 for how to censor the internet in the event of this outbreak? Well, it was Avril Haines, who at the time was the deputy director, the former deputy director of the CIA. And now she's the, she's the head of ODNI. She's the director of national, Intel, national wow. intelligence. She's the CIA's boss. I didn't even know that. What the heck was she doing running the, the COVID uh, simulation right before the COVID outbreak happened i think you know yeah. why she got the promotion well then you also look she, at peter dazak which a lot of people also allude is connected to the intelligences and work for them there's a lot of also scuttlebutt of him directly telling individuals yes i'm, I'm a part of the kind of larger intelligence well, agencies and then you add the fact that the intelligence agencies were the ones telling social media companies to stop any kind of talk and conversation about gladly. this coming from the lab that they were connected to uh you have a lot of circumstantial evidence there that does well, highly and, suggest and it was just quick quick addition Fauci also blatantly perjures himself before Congress to uh, Rand Paul. He doesn't face any sort of consequences. I personally believe it's because he's an inside man. That's that's their guy. Uh, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm crazy. You're crazy, but I don't think you're wrong. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I mean, RFK Jr.'s book makes a pretty compelling point about Tony Fauci's military background, essentially, you know, how he went from being just a you know, kind of like an apparatchik to being involved in the biosecurity state through NIAID. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot there when you, when you trace back the, the military role in pandemics and in, and especially in establishing toeholds. Now this gets us back like pride to territory. That's, that's gonna, if we were to give it a full treatment would like take up all this. So I almost don't want to go too back into it, but you look at some of the stuff around AIDS and Ebola and Zika, and you look at the military footprints on, on a lot of that stuff. I'll, I'll leave that there. And, and the vaccine uh, trials and scientific experiments that were also carried out in the specific regions that were connected to it, there's also circumstantial evidence. Well, do you think, that, do you think that HIV AIDS was, was a bioweapon? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to weigh in on that as much as I'd like to. You know, I, I, that's, that, for me to give my full position, I think, is, would like would just take this thing over because okay. it's such it's such its own thing. But what I'll point out, I just want to do a few more things on on the CIA's role in the in the COVID story. I mean, first of all, 
if you, if you remember, the CIA got in a lot of trouble. I think this is 2013-ish when they got in trouble running fake you know, vaccine clinics designed to collect the biometrics of, uh, of insurgent groups. So, you know, David Petraeus, when we started getting in trouble in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, uh, trying to contain insurgencies there, we came up with this brilliant idea of, of what we called identity dominance or identity intelligence. And it was this idea that, you know, the problem is the reason we lose to insurgency groups sometimes is because they operate in these huge masses of people and we can't identify everybody. You know, we, we've got dossiers on the leaders, but, they, you know, they, they do these giant marches or these, these they take over a town. It's, it's 300,000 people. You can't tell who is who. They go back into their homes at the end of the day and now you, you, you can't identify who the friends and foes are because they can fold back into the anonymity of a mass crowd. But if you had the bio, if you had the biometrics of every single person in the country, you could solve that problem. They can no longer rely on the guerrilla tactics of, of, of anonymous, you know, sort of insurgent warfare. So, so under this David Petraeus doctrine, we set about trying to collect 80, make sure we had at least 85% of all of the people who lived in Iraq and Afghanistan, all of their biometric markers. So, you know, this is how you have pictures of Marines opening up people's eyelids to get their, you know, to get their eyes or taking their samples. And, and so these, so the CIA popped up these vaccine clinics and they were taking the biometric data of, of the people who lived there. Now this, they got in a lot of trouble. They got busted in Pakistan over this. It was a huge international incident and it was several other places. And these vaccine clinics, it turned out, were, were a, a means to be able to accomplish the military's biometric collection goal. Now, that happened to be the exact thing that ended up playing out here in terms of, you know, uh, contact tracing and in terms of all the other, you know, uh, you know, weird aspects of that same sort of counterinsurgency well, strategy. More importantly, DNA data collection from everyone who took the COVID test exactly. and, and gave the test back to whoever was right. facilitating it. And then uh, the FBI literally put out a warning saying, hey, uh, there's a lot of uh, private interest buying up your DNA data, including the Chinese government, which is fucking crazy. Right. Well, yeah. that's who sat next to Avril Haines at the at the uh, at the COVID uh, at the at the event to a one simulation. It was it was the head of the of Chinese military intelligence. So, you know, wow. It, Did not it, know that either. Yeah. I mean, you, you so this is a up. joint up. It sounds like a joint up. It it looks bad is <laughs> as, as as far as I can as I can well, go. Well, well the way I, I see it is is uh, essentially a larger cooperative uh, operation with the Chinese government and the American government saying we're going to work together to uh, essentially subjugate, enslave the world, take away money from the poorest people, and empower ourselves and enrich ourselves to fortunes that we have never seen before. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Just last, just to wrap up this, this thing that that sort of haunts me is it's not just. The, the CIA and the DOD's role in the creation. It's not just the CIA and the DOD's role in the sort of preemptive planning around a cover-up. It was actually, in the actual cover-up itself through the form of internet censorship is where, that's really where I sort of enter the picture in terms of like the, the censorship industry. It turned out that the, the mass censorship of, of all discourse around COVID-19, COVID origins, vaccine skepticism, uh, com uh, complaints about a potential uh, lockdowns or, or potential mandates, the, f the first through the post, so to speak, to censor that were all military intelligence entities. So, for example, Graphica was one of the first groups to censor the Internet. Now, in their own report, they said they started doing, uh, they started doing COVID censorship work on December 16th, 2019. That's just four days after the coronavirus outbreak 
in China before it, before before the WHO was even informed of it. Now, when I published an article on that, they said, "Oh no, no, no! We started on January 16th, but we said December 16th was when it's, it's at, we sort of misphrased it in the report. December 16th is when we is when we started collecting the data. We we backdated our data by 30 days. So even if you take them at their word on that." That's it wasn't even called COVID nineteen at that time. Right. It was still called the coronavirus. No one, no one knew it was a big deal. Either. And they teamed up with NATO's Stratcom, the Center for Center of Excellence. The psych, this is the psychological warfare shop that NATO set up after the twenty fourteen coup. And you know who Graphica is itself the the entity that that I, I'm describing here that responded to this report I did on them. They are a graduate of, of the, the the Pentagon's Minerva Initiative. The Minerva Initiative is our psychological warfare research center within the within the Pentagon. They got seven million dollars from the DoD to do to do psychological warfare work in conflict zones. And then the moment COVID COVID hits, they're redirected to look at look at at, at a at a transnational level. The U.S., Europe, Latin America. They had this whole chart that they produced around segmenting it by community groups, by ethnic groups, by political groups. Now, what the hell is the Pentagon's psychological warfare outlet doing monitoring what Luke or Clint or Jack Posobiec is saying about COVID-19 before it's even called COVID-19? What the hell is the Pentagon PSYOPs division doing there that early on the ground? It's like them showing up to the crime scene before the crime has even been committed. Absolutely, no. That's a, that's a major um, revelation. That that's something that I wasn't even aware of. I was aware of the larger kind of propaganda efforts. I was aware of of people who were speaking truth that were censored, demonetized, downranked, and had their uh, independent media careers destroyed. Zero Hedge had the, their whole entire profile just taken down, even from places like like Twitter, for saying, "Hey." There's a lot of circumstantial evidence here suggesting that this came from a laboratory that we were financing with ties to the intel agencies. Done. Cut. You couldn't say that. You couldn't get away with it. You couldn't say it on YouTube. You couldn't say it on Facebook. You definitely couldn't say it on Twitter. Now you you can. I got an article here pulled up by science.org that is titled, CIA bribed its own COVID-19 origin team to reject lab leak theory, anonymous whistleblower claims, as, of course, the agency denied allegations as a congressional panel demands information from the larger kind of role they played in when it came to controlling the narrative, controlling the information, stopping anyone from speaking the truth, as, of course, the, the major... The major impact of all of this is that people need to realize the, the first uh, casualty of war is, is the truth. And we were fucking lied to every step of the fucking way. And because we were, we had to deal with tremendous humanitarian crises that could have not happened if we knew what the fuck was going on. I think the, the bigger point to piggyback off that is that if the first casualty of war is the truth, that means you're at war. And I, I think that's, that's what concerns me most about this is that what, what Mike was just pointing out, these are psychological operations that were being ran against the American people in the early days of COVID before it was even fucking branded that. Why would they be doing that? Because it was a psyop. I, I honestly think that's what it is. And the fact that they worked in tandem with China, there's still never been any real hearings or findings when it comes to who who is actually responsible, given that America was funding it. Fauci lies about it. He's not held to account. China obviously points fingers to everybody else, but they also kept their 
their airports open to kind of export the virus in the early days of it, which which raises a whole bunch of other questions as to like, all right, was it was it a bio warfare strike against China that China then said, oh, you think you're going to fuck us? We're going to fuck the whole world. Then maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's that simple. But to me, it screams psyop and it screams a joint uh, operation between the CIA, the CCP, and probably MI6. That's my guess. Well, even just one last thing on the on the CIA and DOD's role in the in the in the cover up and in social media censorship. So it's it's not just that they were the the first ones to do the censorship. They were also the most extensive. So there's a group right now that is part of this Missouri v. Biden Supreme Court free speech case, and they're being sued by America First Legal, and they're they've been subpoenaed by the Jim Jordan committee and a dozen, it's called the Virality Project, and it consists of four entities. It's the Stanford University's Stanford Internet Observatory, the University of Washington's Center for Informed Public, that, that's basically the Bill Gates University, the Gates family's been on the trustee board there for like multiple generations. And then you've got this Graphica group that I was talking about, this, this Minerva Initiative Psychological Warfare group from the Pentagon, and then the Atlanta Council. So those four entities, if you now they were they ran this thing called the Virality Project. It was a government partnered mass censorship uh, uh, scheme. They had four categories of of claims that they itemized out for the social media companies to ban everything about vaccines, everything about masks, everything about mandates and lockdowns, and everything about conspiracy theories about high profile public health officials like Tony Fauci. All of that stuff was top-down coordinated in terms of the banned terms. They had they used AI to track and monitor emerging narratives, any sort of skepticism. Before it even went viral, these people were using AI tools well, hence like the, the project, mm-hmm. the Virality Project. Yeah, they wanted exactly, to prevent any, exactly, any exactly. truth from going but viral. Who, but who was the Virality Project, really? So the, the head of the Stanford Internet Observatory was... You know, I mean, technically, Michael McFall is the boss of that. He was Obama's ambassador to Russia. That is, he's the quarterback. The ambassador is the quarterback between the CIA and the State Department and the DOD. Coordinates all that all that activity in in, in the region. the The head of research, so to speak, which is the head of operations, was Renee DeResta, who started her career in the Central Intelligence Agency. She came. She started her career in the CIA. Uh, the, the the technical uh, director of the Stanford Air Observatory is Alex Stamos, who worked with the intelligence agencies while within Facebook to uh, to carry out the whole Russiagate based censorship. So you have three intelligence connected folks uh, running the Stanford Air Observatory. Who runs the UW lab? Well, it's Kate Starbird. Kate Starbird's got three generations of military family. She got her PhD in crisis informatics, helping the Pentagon basically map. Uh, the social media activities and rumors in, in conflict zones. She, uh, you know, works closely with the whole Fort Lewis uh, base there in the in the Puget Sound. The uh, the Atlantic Council, who's the third one, the Atlantic Council has seven CIA directors on its board. A lot of people don't even know seven CIA directors are still alive. Number one heads in the let alone all concentrated on the very board that that was that was one of the four corners of the the Virality Project. They get annual funding every year from all four sections of the DOD, the Marines, the Army, the Navy. They, they, uh, they get fun, annual funding from the State Department. They get annual funding from the National Endowment for Democracy, the CIA cutout we just talked about before. And then the fourth one was, was Graphica, the, the, psychological, the, the, DO, the Pentagon's psychological warfare fighting unit. Every single one of the top censors who are involved in censoring COVID-19 have military intelligence connections, and not just connections. They come straight from it. How can you explain that? These are not pink-haired feminists doing this to you. These are not just crazy left-wing, you know, professors inside of academia. Nah, this is like, this goes all the way to the top. 
That's incredible. Yeah, these are extremely talented, uh, extremely smart individuals who know exactly what they're doing. They're very calculated. They're very motivated. And I wanted to kind of ask you about what do you think their motivations are? What do you think is driving them? Because this is something that I think about all the time. Um, ever since JFK, the political landscape in this country changed dramatically. And the power, the influence favors them more than it does any kind of president, it does seem like they do carry out the majority of the, the vast aggressive operations. Some people would say that, you know, essentially the intelligence agencies do whatever the fuck they want. And I, and I think there's an aspect, maybe that could even be potentially true of them saying, let's do some crazy ass shit. Fuck it. Let's bring some crack cocaine into America. Let's do some MK Ultra. Let's brainwash some individuals. Let's kill some journalists. Let's start some wars. Fuck it. Why not? Because we can. Other individuals are saying that they might be serving a, a, a kind of uh, entity. Uh, other people might be saying that they're serving a special interest. What do you think motivates? What do you think drives these people? Who, who's calling the shots here? Um, and, and what's their motive? You want to take that one? <laughs> no, that's a, that, that's a question that, that I don't have the answer to myself. Yeah, you, no. might not even have the, you might not even have the answer I, myself because how can you? Because th th there's, there's so much here. It, it, it's it's so evident. It, it's so clear, and you, you still kind of struggle to make sense of it all. I, I just want to go back to the the good old days when the CIA was bringing in crack cocaine. That was that was a dream compared to what they've been doing to us. Yeah, recently. yeah at least they gave some Americans uh, some kind of good time, <laughs> yeah. right? Right? Am I right? I I mean, you, you, know, you ended up sucking dick, but it, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. at least you had fun for fifteen minutes. M maybe that's a personal story from Clint, <laughs> but uh, for, for me, for me personally, like. At least they gave some people some fucking crack well, candy. Like fuck. The, like the, at least, at least they spread a little bit of fucking happiness the, somehow. This, but it literally destroyed them and, and killed them. And but whatever. Yeah, Sorry. I mean, this this is why I was asking Mike earlier. Is like, what is the? I mean, it does feel like a color revolution. I but I don't see the end game. I don't understand what it is. It seems as if they're trying to tamp down populist energy, but everything they do inflames it. It brings it to the fore. And I'm like, where, where, like, where's the off ramp? Are you guys gonna put Trump behind behind? Bars? Are you going to remove him from the ballot? Are you going to radicalize 75, 80, 100 million fucking people in America and just uh, that are all armed to the teeth and just go, we'll see what happens? It just seems like there's it's rudderless. It's fucking insane. Well, you're sort of identifying the crux problem of, of a counterinsurgency, right? There's this when we became this world spanning empire after the Spanish American War in 1898, and then we started to just territorially acquire through just political influence pretty much every country on the globe until until fairly recently. And we would always have this problem where we would piss off the locals and they would want to kick our little tin pot dictator out of power. You know, and the best situation is if they had nothing and they were happy, right? Because when they have grievances, they start to protest. They don't pay their taxes. They don't show up to court. They start to form, form their own cells. It becomes expensive to manage them. And so, you know, we, we want people to have nothing. We take their oil. We take their lithium. We take their cobalt. We take their gas. You know, we stick a giant military base. We cut down their rainforest. You know, we, we, we screw them. We, all the money goes to Wall Street and London. And they just sit there and take it with a smile on their face. That's like the perfect situation in the State Department's view. But the problem is, is when you screw people over, they get unhappy. And uh, it, it, unless you can completely control the information environment. But basically, when they get unhappy, they start to form insurgencies against the little, the, the little governance structure you have to manage them. And that's when our counterinsurgency doctrine comes in. You know, we have an insurgency doctrine, which is like color revolution type stuff. We support the right sector so that they 
do a sort of January 6th style, you know, assault on the parliament building to kick their president out of office. And then, boom, we plant our flag of, of the newly installed dictator. Um, but the flip side of that chessboard is counterinsurgency. What happens when we have a dictator that we want to keep in power, you know, like Hamid Karzai, for example, in Afghanistan? You know, what happens when they start going? So then there's the we have a whole strategy for how to how to manage these insurgencies. But it all turns on the linchpin of, of legitimacy versus control. And there's this idea that if people perceive the legitimacy of, of their own government, then they'll be compliant with whatever that government does. But the more that government starts to abuse them, then the more they perceive they perceive its illegitimacy. And the more control you exert on on a population, the the less legitimacy the system appears to have. So there's this there's this tension where the, the goal is shoring up the legitimacy of the re, the regime. And you can tamp down on the insurgency using control, but that also increases the illegitimacy. So you know, in a perfect world, the playbook that they that they roll out is something called shape, clear, hold, build, transition, which involves a, a five part strategy. And you can look this up. This is all this is all David Petraeus stuff, like 2010, 2014. We have public manuals on how to do this. But like the, the first thing that you do to, to tamp it down is you shape the information environment. You prime people. You fly in millions of dollars of media. That's where the National Endowment for Democracy comes in and USAID comes in and State Department funded NGOs and then private sector partners, maybe Chamber of Commerce partnerships where you start having, you know, universities on your payroll, all that stuff. Right. So you start, you shape, you shape first and part of that shaping process involves creating a cleavage within the insurgency group to get to basically divide them to have like a faction that can be that can be functionally disavowed because they're going to get it, they're going to get the shaft in the clear process. The clear refers to clearing out just basically you know deep sick you just you just screw mass roundups you know mass arrests uh you know com complete devastation of that of, of one sect of that insurgency group the set the set that you're splitting that's the clear and then the hold phase is basically consolidating the sentiment of of the cleaved off part of the insurgency against the attempts by the insert by that wiped out group to sort of come back and then you basically you build new infrastructure, you get these the new people on your payroll, and then you transition over to like rule of law. That's sort of like the five steps of this. Wow. And, and as and as I see it, like you know, they're that's kind of what they've been doing during the Biden administration. I mean, you could look at the January sixth event as being like uh, you know an, an excuse to go through this process, right? Yeah. Like the insurrection, insurrection, you know, and then this whole thing. Well, you know. Though the Republican Party is not necessarily a terrorist group, but the MAGA faction is, and you had the DOD, you know, saying this directly. You had the FBI, you know, uh, calling all sort of sim sim symbol symbols of you know Trumpism as being extremism. The DHS, all of our national security, and by the way, all those people are staffed by counterinsurgency people. You know, we're, we're trying to do this, and right now we're sort of in this like hold phase. Like, can they keep right. it? As as that remnant is is reorganizing, have they really cleaved the MAGA faction off sufficiently? But it's all about legitimacy and control. And you know what you just said is like, I mean, we I've got a lot of lingering questions about Afghanistan. Frankly, I'm not f firmly convinced we lost to the Taliban. That's maybe a story for another day. But at least the story that we're led to believe is like this insurgency group just defeated us, and partly because we screwed them over for so long. I mean the. 
the word that I've been seeing about the situation in Afghanistan is like it's safer now and like it's less corrupt. And, and they may they might be using uh, the the Afghanis to counter the Iranians, and there's a lot of tensions between the Iranians and the, the Afghanis, which there might be a potential conflict in in with with the region. And the United States would want that particularly. Yeah, um, so, sorry if I cut you off from your train of thinking. Uh, I, I want to go to Stephanie. Stephanie, why do you think the CIA is doing what they're doing? Maybe you have an answer. Um, well, I would say to that that it really has to do with a wider perspective. I feel like there is definitely something behind the curtain, behind the scenes that begs the question of why are we here and what is this? what is this reality all about? What would be the reason for these individuals and agencies and entities to go all the way through all of these processes to hide so many things from the American public and and the populace in general. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think a lot of people have that. <laughs> Steph, we need you to talk more, Steph. What are you doing? Like, you're going to share more of uh, your, your insights here. We need definitely more of a... Uh, uh, I was going to say feminine energy, but Clint already has uh, that uh, filled for us. Uh, I don't know. So, I don't know. Uh, you hear this, you hear this baritone <laughs> so, uh, voice? Are you out of your mind? Yeah. Uh, look, I, I think that it's, it's power accu- accumulation. What, what disturbs me is that it's, it's this war. On, basically, what our government learned through the war on terror has now been completely brought to the domestic three-letter agencies across the board. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's something I've been warning about ever since 9-11. Same. I was saying, hey, this war on terror is going to be turned against the American people and is going to be a war on everyone here in the United States. And that's exactly to and, the T what happened. And the GOP laughed in our faces. All, They're all, like, you crazy conspiracy theorist, yeah. you nutbag, you jihad-loving liberal, literally fucking Bill O'Reilly, that piece of fucking neocon shithead, <laughs> was on Fox <laughs> News criticizing me and we are changed calling us fucking jihad-loving liberals because we, we fucking asked them questions and we were scared about, you know, destroying the Constitution, destroying our fucking civil rights, all in the name of fighting the fucking jihadis that were tied to the CIA and the FBI. Yeah, we had some fucking questions back then, and if we would have had them answered... We wouldn't be where we are right now. Sorry, well, go ahead. No, I, I mean, those are the guys that I, I look at as controlled op or the Bill O'Reilly's of the world. Um, but yeah, it, it really disturbs me that the domestic spying apparatus has been rolled out. We just had the, I think it's FISA 702 that was re-upped and expanded upon. Is that is that right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So that, I mean, just another layer on the domestic war on terror. And keeping in mind, we don't have any domestic terrorists, terrorism issues. Like, it's very, very manageable compared to, to the vast majority of the rest of the world. Uh, but they constantly portray it as like this, this white Christian nationalist, you know, militant organizations that are everywhere. As best I can tell, the, be- the only thing that they can prove as e- or, or present as evidence is like fucking Patriot Front, which to me doesn't like every time they get a arrested they leave their masks on and shit i'm like this is a fucking op too like none of this seems real to me and i just feel like i'm losing my mind because everyone else takes it all seriously and i'm like this is an op this is an op this is an op and i don't know i'm just there's a couple uh, of retarded uh, autists out there but usually they're the ones that get goaded in by the right. intelligence agencies to commit some fucked up shit that they wouldn't commit if it wasn't for it's, people getting, uh, you know, befriending them and trying to get them to do as this. We, as we saw with the Whitmer kidnapping, most of those guys were fucking harmless. And, and I think that's that's what that's what's so disturbing is they just keep concocting, no matter how peaceful and accepting or like the, the even the populist right, like the most radical versions, they're not doing shit. Like everyone's really like almost disturbingly calm. 
everyone's really just taking all of this in stride. No one's hardly rising up at all. And if there's any inkling of, a, of a, someone rising up, then they bring the full fucking weight of the government down upon their heads. Even if it, even if they have to fucking prompt them and give them instruction and arm them and give them the bombs to go and do it. Like that's, that's the only way that they can even like pretend that the American people are, are close to revolting. Yeah. Uh, Mike, this was awesome. A lot of people in the comment section are saying that you have been our guest, uh, our best guest ever. Fully. And uh, yeah, we had a lot Fully of true. really incredible people here on this show. And uh, truly, you brought in a lot of information you, that I wasn't even aware of that really did connect a lot of the dots. And, and this was really a deep dive, informative podcast that a lot of people found a lot of value in. And uh, I just want to thank you for, for coming on the show. Tons this was fun. This, was, this was really fun. This was really awesome. The gauntlet, I, yeah. the gauntlet has been <laughs> dropped the Vic, we have a new number one guest in town. You got to come back and now beat Mike Benz. Good luck. We have a lot of uh, really incredible guests coming on this show. I was at Ampfest. I made a lot of different connections with a lot of different people that are all going to be coming here on this show. Michael Seifert of Public Square is coming on tomorrow. 4 p.m. Eastern, so stay tuned for that show. Friday, we're going to do another show, 2 p.m. Eastern with... Uh, ne Nephilim Death Squad, my, my homies. They're out of their minds, but they'll talk a lot about the spiritual warfare that we're in. Uh, I think you guys will love it. Yeah, I, I talked about the spiritual warfare on my uh, YouTube channel, and then I asked Tucker Carlson a specific question about the larger spiritual warfare, as he recently said some really kind of eye-opening things about the larger kind of demonic interdimensional spirit uh, conflict that uh, is all around us that we probably don't even realize. So there, there's a lot of different things that we want to talk about, and we're able to talk about them only here on Rumble. As you can tell, the Rumble segment, a lot fucking better than those YouTube segments. YouTube segments, I'm fucking constipated as fuck. I'm also dealing with, I, I was sick last week, literally woke up puking and shitting everywhere. I had fucking food poisoning <laughs> this morning. It was fucking awful. Literally, it was like, fucking there. It was fuck. I'm fuck. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm like trying to hold down any fluids I can. So I, I apologize if I wasn't my full energetic larger self as of course I'm fucking dehydrated and fucking literally like at the same time. Like, <laughs> It's fucking disgusting. I, I woke I woke up everyone in the house at like I think at five AM the dog was barking everywhere. Steph, I think I woke you up too, right? No, I slept through the whole thing. Uh, I I I, th I thought I heard you like walking around as I was fucking like, seriously. <laughs> uh, it was fucked up. It was horrible. I was like, man, this is a fucking meme, and I'm fucking going through it, and I felt fucking horrible. The woman uh, topic was too hot for Rumble, right? Uh, oh. No, no, no. <laughs> we, we, we just didn't have time. I didn't want to cut you off. I, there's this like viral video. Of uh, of a guy telling off uh, an OnlyFans girl that I think well, would have started for, the conversation, right, yeah. but but uh, Mike, uh, you know, you, you come back come back anytime. I also wanted to, to talk about gangster rap. I wanted to talk about four thirty two hertz. I wanted to talk about the larger kind of weaponization of music in, in many different Next aspects time. of our society. The people demand a sequel. Let's, Let's get it. into it in another time, as well as women, as well as other stuff. And uh, I, I just want to thank you for coming on. If people want to support you, we didn't even talk about your foundation and all the cool stuff you're doing with that. Tell us a little bit about that. Where can people find you? Where can people support you? So foundationforfreedomonline.com. Our mission is to restore the golden age of the internet. Uh, we are uh, helping to educate the public about the censorship industry. And uh, you can find us there. I'm on Twitter slash X at Mike Ben Cyber. That's all one word at Mike Ben Cyber. I post like 
every day like a madman. So uh, if you want the deep, deep dirty on it, follow me there. Yeah, you have some really uh, good kind of uh, posts on there that I follow myself. Also, we're, we're almost close to 100,000 followers on Rumble, which means Clint has volunteered to taser, uh, get tasered. And once we, we, we hit 100K, Super so chat $1,000, we'll do it right now. We're almost there. We're, we're almost there. Almost at 100,000 subscribers. And- <laughs> oh my God! Clint has uh, Clint's gonna get it on camera. At Thank nine, you, Clint, at, for volunteering. Ninety nine thousand. I'm gonna retire. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, at Liberty Lockpot on Twitter. Uh, Mike Ben Cyber is one of the best followers out there. Make sure you follow him. Liberty Lockdown is my my flagship show. I will be back on YouTube next week. I was on a thirty day suspension, so make sure you guys go and subscribe. I'm also on Rumble. Been kicking ass over there. Had some great interviews. Hopefully, we can get Mike over there too because I fucking love this guy. He's like a like a fucking black box of information that I just get to go, hey, what you think about that? What you think about that? He's like, answers, answers, answers. It was so much fun. Uh, and uh, tonight, 9.30, check us out. Tower Gang on Rumble. It's going to be insane. Steph. Yes, thank you so much. It was so nice to listen to everything you had to say and share here in this conversation. Um, you can find me at Steph We Are Change or Steph WRC on Twitter. All right. Uh, let the tasering begin. Almost at 100K. <laughs> We're going to fucking do it. And when we do, it's going to be must-watch television. I love you guys. Stay tuned for more here on thebestpoliticalshow.com. All right.